You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 523. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 31st of May, 2022. In today's episode, Lightning causes extensive damage to a Jetstar 787. Two French fighters collide during an air show. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the eager beavers. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices, powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 523 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest, you guessed it, aviation news and your great aviation feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining me from... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire... Professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Uh, good evening, Jeff. Thank you very much indeed. And congratulations, Your Majesty, for 70 years on the throne. I have to spend about an hour on the throne every morning, and I don't get any special celebrations. I knew that was going to that place. All right, and also joining us from our studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It's a place to stand. Retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Poppy making a guest appearance. Oh, hello, Poppy. Mm-hmm. Would you like a speech? Speech. She'd she, probably be more erudite than I am. How, how is that master treating you? That's what I'd like to uh, know. Yeah. Poppy confidential. Yeah. That's yeah, a bunch of poppycock. <laughs> Looking good, me. though. All right. See you later, um, guys. All right. Well, don't go Cheers, too far, guys. though. Make sure you're telling me what to say and what to do. Thanks. I'm right here, Jeff. Oh, do you right. ever feel fear. like a puppet, Jeff? <laughs> I do. And uh, <laughs> let's um, talk some aviation news right now. Stand by for news. First one is from our favorite news source, the Aviation Herald, and it involves a Jetstar Boeing 787-800 registration Victor Hotel, Victor Kilo Lima, performing flight 444 from Melbourne to Coolangatta, uh, Australia. Not oh, just sure. Coolangatta, yeah. Okay, Coolangatta uh, in Queensland. 
uh, departed Melbourne's runway 34, climbed to flight level 410, and landed on Kulangata's runway 14 about 105 minutes after departure. And for us normal people, that would be one hour and five minutes. Or no, that would be one no. hour and 45 minutes. 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, got, I corrected myself before you, you sure got a chance to. sure it's not 10 hours and five minutes? Uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, the aircraft, <laughs> that's a big country, could be. <laughs> uh, the aircraft hasn't flown since. Uh, post-flight examinations wow. found extensive damage due to lightning strikes. The aircraft is currently estimated to be out of service for about two months. And uh, let's see. That's so, a long time. Yeah, it is. They uh, well, it's a seven eighty seven. You know, it's made of plastic, right? Um, and uh, well, yeah. I uh, guess. But when, I mean, it must have been quite a severe strike to have created that amount of damage. I wonder if they're. Uh, I wouldn't say struggling to fix it, but of course, uh, it's not like a aluminium aircraft where you can just patch it and go. Um, if it's gone through the copper mesh that goes. Uh, on the outside of the carbon fiber, usually just embedded in it, um, then I don't know where, how, whether you have to replace whole panels or what um, if it's been a significant strike. I'd be really interested to know if we have any um, Boeing engineers uh, or Airbus come to that because very similar technology out there who can explain, uh, you know, if we get a severe strike like this, um, you know, what the repair technique is to repair that that mesh that conducts standard electricity around the skin prevents it from entering the aircraft if you know basically creating a faraday's cage around the aircraft and conducting the strike uh, through the outside of the airframe and on back into uh, wherever the lightning was headed um how they go about the a big repair like that i don't know i mean i'm I'm not uh, obviously an expert in carbon fiber construction and that kind of thing, but I thought that you'd have to actually put in like a whole new plug section and somehow get it into an autoclave or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe some, they need some ironing. Some uh, maybe oh, yeah. Oh, on. very good point, Liz. Uh, she's saying that um, <laughs> your skills as an extreme ironer, uh, you yeah. and, uh, and Miami Rick, Rick together – with your fancy irons, probably could take care of the situation pretty quickly. Nah, I think Neil's onto a, a, a good uh, idea here. Chicken wire, PVA, and pencil shavings. Hmm. What's PVA? Yeah. What's that mean? Um, that's a, a type of uh, glue, white PVA glue. It's uh, like, okay. like Elmer's. Glue, I personally would use Araldite or, or a similar epoxy gorilla resin. Glue. Gorilla glue. Or that I have. A, I just bought uh, a thing that they could use. Uh, it's a hot glue gun. <laughs> there you go. That might help. That Perfect. might be helpful. Perfect. We'll get some some crafty people down there to fix the airplane with chicken wire and a glue gun. <laughs> yeah, pop that uh, METAR up. Um, just you know, and I highlighted the uh, the around the times that they were in each of these locations, Melbourne and uh, Kulangata. Um, and obviously, it looks like the weather was a little bit more thunderstormy. Uh, up at uh, Kulangata. I'm thinking up. Maybe it's down. I'm not sure. Where is that it's in up, relation? It's up. It's up? Okay, up. Queensland's yeah, up from Victoria. Any sign of CBs? No, well, it says uh, rain showers um, yeah. and light rain showers, but no, really no mention of thunderstorm activity. No. Mind you, you, the en route weather might have been. They might yeah. have had a 
the front to go through or something. True. Uh, I think if you're an Australian, you'd probably say Kulin Gatta or something yeah. like that. Okay. Well, I'm not an Australian, but I'll let you take it. <laughs> what you're saying sounds very precise. Kulin Gatta? Proper. Kulin Gatta. I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I apologize. Um, yeah. So may- maybe somebody out there knows something uh, about how they well, Micah, would repair Micah this. Micah seems to know something about Micah it. seems exactly. to know something about this. Some, something similar happened in Africa, I believe, to an Ethiopian aircraft. They needed to move in a portable autoclave. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, well. So. And, and, and apart from that, it, it does remind us just how severe um, thunderstorms can become. And I, I hate to bring in the subject of global warming, but as the atmosphere has more energy in it, as the atmosphere warms up slightly, these storms can grow into megastorms, uh, which can have you know bigger lightning strikes, stronger winds, uh, more um, typhoons. More. What, what do you guys? Call it when you get a thunderstorm that produces a tornado, uh, a supercell or um, a mega, um, yeah, something cyclone, cyclonic, mesocell, anemia. No, but it's yeah. a, to- a tornado. And they green. <laughs> there you go. We need to go green. Take care of the lightning. Um, yeah. Oops, no, that's the wrong one. Lightning, yeah. go around. If there's lightning, go around. Is that um, a GR4 to- tornado or a uh, ADV? I don't know what the heck you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> Greg Peterson but even, uh, even just like regular run-of-the-mill before global warming um, <laughs> kind of thunderstorm can produce lightning that can do damage That's like that, too. That's why Jeff flies in the morning. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to this sent in from, I don't know. I've never heard of this guy. Nigel, 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 Demary. Uh, of course, if we were joking, it's Nigel, Nigel Demary. Uh, he said, uh, just in case you haven't seen this two uh, is it Raphael, Raphael? Uh, yeah, that's right. Raphael. Fighters, uh, collide during air show. I thought he was one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But... <laughs> he probably yes. was as well. Uh, okay. Uh, they collided, two of them, um, midair during an air display at the Cognac Air Show in the oh, southwest. Of- well, that'll, that'll be the drunk. reason they had a bit too much Cognac. With their lunch, I suspect. I wonder if this has anything to do with that shipment stolen, that was uh, stolen. The stolen cognac. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the, These two guys may have memory. had something to do with it. That's right. Absolutely brilliant. Well done. The two yeah, aircraft sure belong to the Vantour Bravo tactical display team of the 30th Fighter Wing. The wing had just won the Silver Tiger Award for the best display at the NATO Oops. Tiger Meet in 2022 in Araxos, Greece. I have no idea. Araxos. Uh, Rogue. Nailed it. Barton, the leader, also won the Best Tiger Aircraft Award for its livery. During their pr- tactical presentation, uh, the two uh, Raphaels, uh, Raphaels uh, from the 30th, I think I'm getting worse every time I try to pronounce it, so I'm just going to stop. <laughs> uh, two R jets uh, from the 30th Fighter Wing touched each other in flight. <gasps> oh, oh, naughty. No, it's not good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. One of them lost a piece of its tail fin, which damaged the roof of a house during its fall. A picture shared on social media. I don't have any pictures, by the way. No. Uh, on social media shows that the top of the rogue Spartan fin was severed. This part includes several sensors of the Raphael's uh, Spectra electronic suite, including the missile launch detection system, 
whose optronic is visible. Ooh, that's embarrassing. It was recovered in the village of Jean-Sac-la-Palou, uh, nine kilometers, uh, 5.6 miles east of Cognac. Other pictures seem to indicate that the leader's left wingtip missile pylon and the wingman's right canard were damaged, though the French Air and Space Force have not Space Force have not yet confirmed this. The two pilots managed to land safely. No injuries were reported. French Investigation Bureau for Safety Aviation Safety BEA opened an investigation to identify the causes of this incident. So yeah, I hadn't heard about this and wonder if they have any um any that'd be cool if they had video of them flying and touching and flying. It, it yeah. would. I'd love to see it yeah. to see what maneuver they were performing. Um not that it really matters when you're you've got two aircraft or, you know, some of the formation teams have, you know, seven, nine, um, five, four, three, two, one. Um, but you're dashing around very close to each other. And, of course, we, we've seen those amazing videos from the Blue Angels where they are literally overlapping. I mean, they might have a little bit of vertical s- separation, but um, flying formation aerobatics three, four feet away is not uncommon uh, amongst formation teams who cross great deal of skill. But sometimes if there's a little bit of turbulence around or, you know, it doesn't take much just to, to jog your elbow. Sometimes if you're, you know, trying to just trying to ease a bit of cramp or whatever the reason. Um, yeah, it, it's very easy to get a bit too close and end up dinking. Um, it, traditionally, most teams uh, put it down to air, bird strikes. They say, oh, we, we've had a bird strike. <laughs> so we're going to have to repair the airplanes. And everyone goes... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Jeff, I just sent you a link. Yeah, well, I um, I heard you say that, uh, but I was also searching as well, Liz, and I found maybe the same the same video. So I'm going to quickly oh, we download it, and I'm going to go over here. I shall sit back with my glass of wine. Okay, you do that. Your cognac. No, that's not wine. Um, but if you have cognac, I, I suggest that you uh, – Get it out for this occasion. Um, let's see. Share video file. Oh, kind of noisy. Okay, two Raphael fighters collide midair. Uh, okay. Terrifying moment caught on camera. They're close. They're like close trail. Probe launched after aircraft's tail sever. That doesn't look unusual at all to me right there. Oh, I guess that wasn't it. There's, there's, oh, I love this music. The midair mishap happened at the Cognac Chateau Bonan military base. We're watching these uh, fighter jets just kind of mostly follow each other in close trail and maybe tight echelon or something. I don't know. Why don't you give some uh, commentary here, Nick? Okay. Well, we're looking at the bit that fell off. We haven't actually seen the moment they touched, but that's a a nice looking hunk of uh, fin. Just the top. Yeah. A lot of uh, fighters have their sensors in the top of the fin. It's a convenient place to stick Ah! it. Sorry. Oh, (laughs) there they go. 
Oh. Uh, yeah, apparently they made a loud bang. Well, I expect if you knock a bit off. Yeah, but that's already happened because that bit of fin is already separating at that point. Well, it's probably not in chronological order. It here doesn't look like he's actually <laughs> got the moment. No. Might have some stills of it, but... Yeah. Collisions are relatively rare. I mean, certainly during displays, it doesn't happen very often. Very often. Tiger paint scheme. So that messed... Oh, yeah. That's missing a bit of its uh, top tail Ten, fin. Yeah. Okay. Well... I guess that's better than what I had before, which is nothing. Uh, we get to see the uh, well, yeah, jets flying around. Well, yeah, see the airplane. Uh, it, it is a lovely uh, aircraft, Raphael. It's been around for quite a while now, though. I mean, it, it's a Delta with uh, canards. It's very maneuverable. Uh, it's all fly-by-wire stuff. Um, you know, part of the Gripen and Raphael and um, Typhoon sort of generation, although the Typhoon is probably a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the incredible things is that having um, seen uh, the results of uh, F-18s, F-18 um, mid-airs, you can knock all sorts of bits off and the flight controls can fail or be um, less effective. And the flight control computers, certainly in um, the beautiful Hornet, they compensate wonderfully. Uh, we had a mid-air collision during combat when I was out in Australia, and um, the two pilots involved, uh, one of them didn't even realize it had been a collision, even though a significant portion of his wing had disappeared. And um, he volunteered to go look at his friend who said there'd been a problem, and uh, and he was flying the airplane along perfectly well. And when he eventually looked out, he had a significant portion of his wing missing. And he hadn't even realized um, because the flight control computers were compensating using other control surfaces to uh, maneuver the aircraft. Uh, and it was also smooth and, you know, uh, fine that he thought he'd just gone through his wake turbulence. That turned out he'd <laughs> give, given him a fair whack. That reminds me of an incident um, that um, an Israeli F-15 landed without a wing. Um, oh, yes, the F-15, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can get a – here, I'll share this shot. While you're sharing that, um, I whole boxes thinks it's a Rafael, not a Raphael. Okay. That, I think he's right, uh, Raphael, because there's no Raphael. There's just F-A-L-E. Um Okay, uh, let's see here. I'm going to share this tab, and you can see this picture of this Israeli Neil, F it was McDonnell Douglas construction. Don't you dare say that. <laughs> uh, now, now, kids, let's not fight, <laughs> please. Um, StreamYard, share, share screen, Chrome tab. Boom, boom. There we go. Oh, no, I still have to do something. There we go. Go back to StreamYard and then click on... Tension's killing me. I know, isn't it? It's wonderful. This is great radio. You're building up the uh, anticipation Boom. here. Oh, wow. Oh, someone photoshopped the wing out. <laughs> I think this is a real picture. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, as you as you mentioned in the you know other instances of... 
losing a portion of the wing, or in this case, the entire wing, uh, the, uh, well, the, just the power of the engines and also the, the advanced, uh, flight control, digital flight control systems, uh, were able to compensate for the loss of the wing. Now I wouldn't imagine you'd want to go into combat like this, but, um, no, no, but you better bring it back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suspect they landed fairly fast. Yes. Because as soon as you try to slow down like that, eventually you'd run out of control authority. Yeah. But uh, if you keep the speed up and find a long enough runway, you're probably going to be all right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely it is amazing. amazing. It is amazing. All right, I'm going to stop screen sharing. Okay. Um, anything else to be said about the, uh, two fighter jets? Just, I'm glad that there was nobody injured and they didn't no, lose the aircraft. No, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just a, you know, a possible, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, um, you don't, you something need that happens when ear. you do that kind of a job. Occasionally you mm-hmm. dink. Well, sorry about yeah. that. But I just love this music. Can we hear it again? Yeah, I'm wondering... What do they use to film this? <laughs> All those bits of fleck around. Yeah, I was going to say they should probably clean the lens next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After all, if you're looking for bits falling off the airplane, that's just what they all look like. It looks like <laughs> yes. they've shattered into a thousand pieces. A bunch of carbon pieces. fiber just flying out yeah. of it. And that's what it looks Absolutely. like in Formula One when these cars crash. <laughs> just like tiny yes. little pieces of carbon fiber Car- everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Sorry, main man, Micah, we're scaring him. He goes, no, not again. It's far too terrifying. And it should be a T-O-O. A horror um, Of course, he's probably <laughs> using his uh, dictation thing. So Siri doesn't know you meant the T-O-O. Um, all right, let's uh, move on to this next one, which I'm sure is just as terrifying. Uh, in fact, it's a Terra Air. <laughs> I don't make this oh, up. Dear. T-A-R-A, Terra Air, or Tara Air, if you prefer. Uh, De Havilland DHC-6-300 Twin Otter. Registration 9 November Alpha Echo Tango. Performing a flight from Pokhara to Jomson. Nepal, with 19 passengers and three crew, was en route at 13,000 feet, about 16 nautical miles south of Jamsam, about to enter the valley for the approach into Jamsam near Leet Pass when the aircraft disappeared from radar. A search included, including two helicopters was underway, but hampered by poor visibility in the area near Lete or Leet, Nepal, where the aircraft is assumed to have crashed. Now, when they're writing this, they didn't realize that indeed it had crashed and they did find the wreckage on the side of the mountain and liz you can show that if you'd like i'm just um, answering stuff she's just leaving work okay uh there's the uh accident scene taken by an army um probably an army helicopter up against the uh side of this very steep um mountain wall um Let's see, the uh, CAA Nepal reported last contact with the aircraft had been 10.07 local time near Godpani, um, approaching Leet Pass. No further contact occurred. Uh, later that day, the CAA reported that an ELT signal has been located near uh, Kaibang. And uh, anyway, there, we're showing a, on the, uh, on the uh, video a Google Earth um, image of that very mountainous terrain, obviously, Nepal, near uh, Mount Everest and all that kind of stuff, I'm sure. Um, and um, wouldn't that be in the same area? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm showing my geographic uh, 
Um, well, I, I don't know where these places are, so yeah, I, I, don't I can't actually orientate myself. But they got to be the Himalayas, um, right? Not um, that familiar. That mountain Oh, range. yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, so you can see the last radar returns, and then uh, in the upper left-hand corner, or not corner, but the left upper left-hand side, uh, circling where they think the approximate final position was. And uh, not they don't really give... Um, Let's see. The airline reported uh, before departure, the aircraft weather conditions were checked and it was known that Leet Pass was covered with clouds. Hmm. Two aircraft were scheduled to fly. The flights planned to depart at 6.15, therefore departed late at 9.55 after the weather had improved. The other aircraft flying three minutes ahead of the crashed one. This aircraft landed in Johnson. The crash was about five minutes from landing. Okay, so it looks like the weather was kind of scoshy. And, uh, yeah, the, I'd say so. The first aircraft made it, and uh, the second one did not. Looks no, like- which, which is a bit of a worry, but, uh, you know, sometimes this weather, when it's blowing around mountains, clouds can form very quickly. They can disappear equally quickly, and it may be just a matter of rolling the dice to see whether you can find a clear path through or not, but... You know, you take your life into your hands when you're flying amongst this kind of terrain when the weather isn't brilliant uh, because there are not a lot of escape routes. And if you end up going into cloud, losing sight of the ground, um, you know, there's not a lot you can do except climb and hope. Uh, And I don't know if if that's their general technique. Um, uh, You know, in, in a fighter jet when we did this, we know we had heaps of energy. We could confirm convert very quickly into altitude uh, to get you clear and up above the safety altitude. But the safety altitude is so high in this kind of terrain, you've got to climb for a long time to get above. And it may have been what they were trying to do. Uh, they perhaps had a lot of side of the ground in the valley and then started climbing and hit the side of the hill just because they couldn't get the, the angle of climb they needed to clear the terrain. Yeah, I mean it's a twin otter, so it's not it's not going to have that same kind of performance as a no, as a fighter exactly jet would right. have. Yeah. yeah, it's a Canadian no. plane. So, oh, uh, it's a Canadian uh, plane too. That's probably, I would say, probably one of the primary causes of the accident. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course, it's a great airplane. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yeah. And what's more, it can turn well. It's it's got it's got the kind of performance you would want, the kind of ability to get into these tight spaces. But uh, those narrow valleys look very narrow. So if if you were to get go into your mic in the middle of one, you really uh, would be on a hiding to nothing to get out of it. Yep. Which which makes me wonder why they were pressing ahead if the weather wasn't really good. I suppose they're under commercial pressure to to keep the service going. But uh, you know you'd really want to have good weather before you attempt to fly that. That it looks pretty much a one way. Valley. It doesn't look like you've got room to turn around in there. No, it looks pretty tight in there. Mm. Uh, Liz also looked up for us. Um, Mount Everest is quite a quite a ways, of, a distance away from from that area. But you know, any I guess that entire country is mostly mountainous. So anyway, um, yes, Neil says if only we had a twin otter expert on board or on she's hand on her way. she is on her way though she's going to she's going to help us out maybe when she gets uh she usually listens while she's uh transitioning from her work mode to her apg mode 
So uh, maybe, <laughs> Steph, if you remember, uh, when you get back, uh, you can maybe put in your two cents or two pence or whatever you want to call it when you when you arrive. Her two otters. Her two otters. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Ot- oh, otters. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's um, move on with uh, the next one. It's uh, D. Uh, West Atlantic Boeing 737-400 at Exeter on January 19th, 2021, so about a year and a half ago, had a hard touchdown. Boy, that's an understatement. It is an understatement, Liz. Uh, This is from the Aviation Herald. A West Atlantic 737-400 freighter registration Golf Juliet Mike Charlie Yankee performing Flight 5L from East Midlands to Exeter with two crew. Landed on Exeter's runway 26 at 2.34 in the morning, 02.34 local time, but suffered uh, a very hard touchdown. The aircraft rolled out without further incident. No injuries are being reported. Uh, On the 19th of May, uh, 2022, so just a few days back, uh, the AAIB released their final report, concluding the probable causes of the accident were... The aircraft suffered a hard landing. Yeah, that's what I would come up with as well. As a result of the approach being continued after it became unstable, after the aircraft had passed the point where the crew had declared the approach stable and continued. Despite high rates of descent being observed beyond the stable point, together with associated alerts, the crew elected to continue to land. Had the approach been discontinued and a go-around flown, even at a low height, While the aircraft may have touched down, the damage sustained may have been lessened. While the operating manual did not specifically state that an approach was to remain stable beyond the gate on the approach, the flight crew training manual was specific that if it did not remain stable, a go-around should be initiated. The commander may have uh, have given the co-pilot the benefit of the doubt and believed she had the ability to correct an approach that became unstable in the final few hundred feet of the approach. However, had there been any doubt, a go-around should be expected. And I just have to do this. Yeah, You can always go around. And then you're not going to be in a final report of the Air Accidents Investigation Branch. Very much so. Um, there now, if you get into the the details here, maybe uh, Nick, if uh, if you know a little bit more and have read on, there um, <laughs> during this last five hundred feet, um, I think the uh, the sink rate uh, call out from the uh, enhanced ground proximity yeah, warning they, system. They got three, I think. Uh, um sink don't sink or sink rate sink rate that's what they got mm-hmm. um it, it was a it's not an easy approach it's three and a half degree approach which is steeper than the normal approach that most of us are used to so that was one factor um and i didn't think the crew made any particular reference to that which has a slight bearing on the result but they um uh, they First off, to fly in the approach, um, got the aircraft just a little bit high. And, um, you know, we're not talking far from the runway when you're only at 500 feet. You haven't got much to do to correct uh, uh, an error on the ILS because, you know, as you get closer to the origin of the ILS aerials, uh, much smaller corrections are required to correct 
for what appears to be quite a large deviation in the needles. Uh, we're all familiar with that. When you're a long way away, you know, you need a big correction to uh, get back on the glide path or whatever. Uh, uh, but um, they've been flying over 800 feet a minute to maintain a three and a half degree glide path. Got a little high, but then built up quite quickly a significant rate of descent. Uh, and the captain was, you know, uh, had flown with this first officer quite a while and was confident in uh, their ability. Um, so he sort of sat in his hands a little bit, which uh, in this circumstance, in this case, was definitely not the right thing to do because when it got to the point when he finally realized that um, the attitude was well down on what it should have been to make an approach uh, for this runway they would need an aircraft attitude of about plus one degree um, so the aircraft's going down but the nose is ever so slightly up um, she had about uh, five or six degrees nose down which is you know quite an attitude difference that close to the ground built up a uh, large rate of descent and um, captain failed to take control and do a go-around. Um, captain's ultimately responsible for his aircraft, uh, and if the other pilot isn't doing what he would do, uh, in other words, making a mistake, you've got to say at, one, at some point before it becomes a disaster that, you know, this is a learning point, let's talk about it later, I have control, we're going around, or just order the go-around, uh, because, you know, you've now exceeded your stability um requirements for a stabilized approach and this is a, an interesting point um the airline that i flew for we didn't declare that we were stabilized in other words at some point some airlines have a procedure that you come down the approach and at some point whether it's a thousand feet or 500 feet you say we're stabilized in other words at that point you've achieved the stabilized criteria in aircraft attitude, rate of descent, speed, um, accuracy on the ILS, all the things you need to fly a smooth approach. Uh, our, our airline didn't have that procedure, and they said the reason we're not going to introduce that is because we don't want you to think I'm now stabilized and right. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's a fluid, <laughs> dynamic situation. You, yeah, not yeah. a fixed point in time. No, exactly right, Jeff. So they said don't do that. Just make sure you remain within the stabilized career criteria throughout the entirety of your approach. Uh, and this airline didn't adopt that procedure. They declared they were stabilized. And then when they destabilized after that point, you've got that mental, oh, but we've done the stabilized thing. We don't have to worry about those parameters anymore. That's not the case. Um, so, yeah, they, they had a, a, a lot of rated ascent uh, and uh, – they, <laughs> they didn't do much about it when it came, to, or enough, uh, when it came to the landing and landed very, very firmly. My airline is the same way. You know, it's not a fixed point in time. We don't call out stabilized approach. Although uh, there are times when I, I mention, like if we're passing a certain altitude and I say stabilized, you know, but it's not to be interpreted as, okay, now we're good. So no matter what happens now. Uh, we're we're going to continue to try to land yeah. the thing, you know. But yeah. uh, a lot of airlines treat that as a sort of a tick box. Yeah, you've got to tick the stabilized criteria, right? And once 
But the, the the problem is, you're quite right, and I've already said it, once you're past that point, you tend then to forget about stabilise because we ticked that box a while ago. Right. Um, whereas, obviously, uh, this wasn't the situation here. Someone's mentioned, uh, could it have been uh, fatigue? It was uh, an, an approach being made uh, at night. In fact, I think it was in the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes, of course, fatigue always plays a part. I don't know how many sectors they've flown before. If they, if it was their first, then no, uh, not so much. But uh, yeah, fatigue always plays a part. But I think when you're fatigued, I tended to be extra cautious. I, I was kind of aware I was fatigued. So, and it took me longer to make decisions and longer to assess things. But what I did was err on the side of caution because I knew I was fatigued, not press with an approach that was obviously actually getting worse all the time uh, and led to a lot of damage to the aircraft. But that was just me. I mean, uh, fatigue can affect you in your entire decision-making process. Uh, And so it's quite likely that you would um, perhaps be slow or, um, not realize uh, what's happening to the aircraft. Right. I'm just quickly, you know, trying to uh, look through this final report. I don't think, I think this is a summary of it, not the full final report, but as far yeah. as I can tell. That's an interesting have, point just there before you go on any further. Yeah. Jeff, there, there, are uh, okay. The co-pilot's previous proficiency check noted that during, uh, a single-engine approach, the aircraft produced a sink rate, and as such, uh, although she passed that uh, test uh, the second attempt, they assessed uh, her as baseline minimum standard. Now, there is a question about how much um, information uh, should be passed on to the captains that fly with pilots who might be in that situation. In other words, they you know, have an area of weakness. And generally speaking, line captains know nothing about a pilot's previous assessments. You just have to assume that they're fully qualified. Yeah. They've been assessed as unpassed, so they've met the the standard. And this is something that, I don't know, it's a difficult subject as to whether that should be revealed to the captains um, because, you know, you did, in fact, pass. You were retrained and you passed. Does that need to go on? Do the first officers uh, get to see the captain's uh, performance reports from their civilians? No. So, uh, yeah. But it would sometimes, if you've got a, uh, a first officer who is having a few problems, then normally you'd fly them with a training captain who does have access to training records until they're completely satisfied that they've met the standard. Just a quick, uh, I highlighted this manufacturer's assessment of the airframe damage. They said that the Boeing concluded that the wing box would remain intact after landing at at the maximum permitted weight of 121,000 pounds and a sink rate of 18 feet per second, which is a little bit more than 1,000 feet per minute. 
Uh, the manufacturer reviewed the recorded data for this airplane and this incident and assessed that the landing occurred with a mass of approximately 116,700 pounds, so below the max weight, and a sink rate of 24 feet per second, which is Ooh. 1,440 feet per minute. I was looking through here to see if there were any G, G-force um, readings, but I didn't see it anywhere. But yeah. uh, the wing box did remain intact, uh, preventing fuel leakage. So that's the good part. And then also the main landing gear shock absorbers uh, absorbers bottomed out during the landing. And uh, the, the, la- the main landing gear beams act as a structural fuse for vertical loading. Correspondingly, the drag strut bolts act as a fuse for drag loading. So I guess those will shear as well um, to kind of help prevent, you know, major damage to the structure. But uh, yeah. after the wing box, though, as you, as we saw in some of the um, photos that uh, Liz was uh, presenting, um, yeah, uh, definitely a hard touchdown for sure. And uh, yeah, that airplane's yeah, not going to fly. Again. asking a question here. Not almost okay. certainly not. Uh, Neil is asking in our live audience, it would be interesting to have a discussion about glide slopes to us non-pilots. Two, three, or even five degrees doesn't sound like much, but the difference clearly matters. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't sound like, you know, what's the difference between a normal standard glide slope or glide path is three degrees. Uh, sometimes you'll see 3.1, 3.2, whatever. But when you start getting up into the 3.5 range, now it's a much steeper glide path. And I forgot what the... Uh, the glide path is uh, the glide slope into um, the uh, London City Airport, but it's pretty. I mean, it's almost double. Six, it's like close to six degrees, isn't it? Five degrees, something like that. I, I, don't, know. I don't know. I quite yeah. honestly, I've never okay, flown thanks, in there, um, but yeah. it is significant such that I, I think most airlines is captain's only landing, and yeah. um, you have to be specially qualified. So you have to go through a specific training course just to do that approach. Yeah. Okay. Well, while Liz uh, does a little bit of research on the uh, glide path angle of uh, London 5. City. 5.5. 5.5. I thought it was pretty high. Yes. 5.5 no, degrees. That is, that's that is, that's yeah. really significant. And uh, But again, I when mean, you look at notice it hugely in the flight date because mm-hmm. instead of looking ni- nice angle down the runway, you'd be looking at a runway that's like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So hats yeah. off to the guys and girls who go in there regularly because right. uh, I don't think that's an easy approach at all. And you have to you have to convince in your mind, you know, okay, you have to like continue to remind yourself, I'm sure, that okay, because I'm coming in at this steeper angle, everything is going to all my normal perspective of everything is going to be completely off and you have to really yeah. watch those parameters very very closely. And then yeah, if it doesn't look right, all, then you go around. Yes, it's not a long runway, and uh, yeah. there's a significant flare from a uh, angle of approach of that to get the nose up to cushion the, the turn it into a normal load. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you look like at a, at a protractor or something like that, or a compass or whatever, and you see, well, not a heck of you know, when you have 360 degrees all the way around, the difference between three and three and a half degrees looks like insignificant, but it's significant. It really is. That's why we brief it when we are briefing our approaches. All right. And perhaps maybe the captain or somebody should have briefed that if they get a call out of sink rate, sink rate below 500 feet, we should probably go around and give it another shot. That's a bit of a giveaway, really. Yeah. All right. Next item is uh, E, report uh, KLM uh, Boeing 737-800 
registration Papa Hotel Bravo X-Ray Golf performing flight 1797 from Amsterdam to Munich with seven crew, captain, first officer under monitoring and a safety pilot in the cockpit. Okay. And okay. So three, uh, flight deck crew members, and then I guess four, uh, cabin attendants and 182 passengers was taxiing for departure from runway nine. This is back in 2018, by, by the way, uh, beginning of the runway, uh, taxiway, um, November 5, 3,460 meters or 11,350 feet takeoff distance available when air traffic control queried whether they could also depart from November 4, which is 2460 meters or 8,070 feet takeoff distance available. So that's maybe maybe 75% of the distance they have full length from November 5. Uh, the crew declined and then the takeoff data data were entered into their FMS while taxiing to intersection November 5 winds change sufficiently so that the crew could accept November 4. The aircraft entered the runway at taxiway November 4, the shorter runway distance, commenced takeoff and became airborne just about uh, 176 meters or 570 feet short of the runway end. The aircraft climbed out to safety and continued to Munich for a landing without further incident. The Dutch um, safety board. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pronounce that word. <laughs> uh, despite the fact that there was a failure to achieve the predicted performance during takeoff, the involved flight crew did not file an air safety report. Hmm. Nobody's going to find out. Uh, by the end of August, 2018, the operator became aware of the incident. The aircraft condition monitoring system data, uh, ACMS revealed the exceedance of the low threshold crossing height parameter. Although the incident was captured by the flight data monitoring program a few days after its occurrence, the incident was believed to be invalid, as many events are. It was put aside for further analysis. The analysis took place in the week last week of August and showed the incident to be valid. This occurrence was consequently classified as a serious incident. So they started really getting into this. Um, so again, uh, the crew, they'd they had prepared for a November 5 intersection takeoff, which was the 11,000 some odd feet. Um, they were not able to comply initially with air traffic control's request for a November 4 intersection due to performance requirements. Having heard new wind information, they reconsidered and determined that November 4 was possible, and that would reduce the delay. Uh, new takeoff performance calculations were completed during taxiing out before lining up the aircraft for takeoff. Uh, because the initial intersection had not been changed to the actual intersection in the data necessary for the performance calculation, erroneous takeoff data were generated. Uh, the change data and the output of the performance calculation was neither checked nor cross-checked, mm. although this is included in the procedures. And this is one of those instances where they were under time pressure and thought, okay, we got the data, we it's good, let's go. But what about cross-checking it and doing the things we're supposed to do? No, we don't have time for that. We need to get out of here. Um, operators' procedures do not require the aircraft to be stopped when new takeoff uh, performance calculations have to be made during taxiing out. Some, author, some other operators do have included this requirement in their procedures. Uh, the erroneous takeoff data, uh, performance data, data resulted in an effective runway length that was 1,034 meters less than the length used for the calculation. Ugh. That's what, 3,000 some odd feet? 
in case of an aborted takeoff at V1. This is why this was a serious incident. Um, if they had aborted the takeoff at V1, the or the velocity, the decision speed, the aircraft would not have been able to stop on the runway. In the event of an engine failure after V1, there would have been insufficient runway length remaining to accelerate the aircraft to minimum V2 speed. This all resulted in reduced safety margins during takeoff. You know, thankfully nothing went wrong. They didn't have to abort. Uh, so, you know, no harm, no foul, except that this was a serious um, mistake made by the crew. Interesting comment from IHOP boxes. Oh, and before I go to that comment, Liz, um, d- this is interesting. Despite some training, the crew did not recognize the need to add more thrust when the end of the runway approached. And therefore, they did not add thrust. <laughs> not adding thrust mm. in these situations have been identified in earlier investigations. Yeah, if you're rolling down the runway and something doesn't feel right, you see the end of the runway coming up a lot faster than you thought it would, and you haven't you know, gone to the maximum um, thrust setting, and if you're using a reduce, reduced thrust setting, push the throttles up. You know, just and most airplanes these days, not all, but most airplanes, especially ones that are controlled by the full authority digital um, auto control or auto throttle control or whatever FADEX stands for, um, you know, they'll you can push them to the stops and it's going to protect, it's not going to let the engine blow, you know, blow itself up. It's going to, you know, honor uh, the engine parameters, but it's going to give you everything it can give you in those uh, engines. And that uh, could make a big difference in a situation like this when they made a mistake with the calculations. Okay, Nick, I'm finished talking. <laughs> no, I was I just going to say, uh, my first Cape Town, um, I was doing both the landing and the takeoff, um, and I was I, I I didn't know that Cape Town had a bit of a bump in, <laughs> in the middle of it. Yeah. So we went roaring off down there, and I'm looking at the and what I thought was the end of the runway, going, right, oh, that looks close. So I said toga and you know firewalled the engines Mm -hmm. and of course as we reached the top of the bump thousands of more feet of runway suddenly (laughs) appeared i went oh that's all right then but (laughs) i felt a bit embarrassed (laughs) by doing that but actually of course it's exactly the right reaction because if you think you've made a mistake and this run you're not quite at flying speed on the end of the runway is coming up you firewall the engines that's what they're for remember that dreadful crashing of the potomac yeah those guys struggled off the runway and were hanging on for dear life at a, at a 50 feet or so with just about to stall. They had more power available. They just never pushed the throttles up. No. Nope. And, you know, and I, I always think, oh, what a dreadful mistake to make. So, uh, yeah, that was always it being in the back of my mind. This is an interesting one, I thought, uh, Jeff, because we have been through so many iterations uh, in my old company of – how to sort out performance, what happens if you get a uh, runway change or a takeoff position change during the taxi out, and how do you deal with this problem of, right, we sat there on back at the gate and carefully worked out our performance figures, we double-checked the figures, you watched me put them in, you double-checked it as as we, and so, you know, we're, we're check, 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 check. Now on the taxiway, one of us is trying to drive the airplane uh, and, the, and do the RT. The other one is now trying to recalculate and do the figures and feed it in the box. And then you've got to hand over control 
and do a complete check through. In the meantime, you've accepted a an earlier takeoff position, which is going to give you an expedited um, departure. So now you have actually less time to accomplish this vital task. And that's the trap that this crew, I think, fell into. They should have just stuck with their old plan. Things would have been fine. But they accepted a, uh, a different situation, gave them less time. They put themselves under a time pressure they didn't need to. And as a result, a mistake was made. So yes. very sad. Now, to talk about, you know, like firewalling, um, you know, in, in the airplanes that I had flown previously that did not have those electronic engine controls to protect the engine, um, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you just, if you feel like you need that extra thrust um, and, you know, it's warranted, you just push it up and you may end up, you know, uh, torching or <laughs> Uh, the engine, the engine, yeah, uh, and the and you know, causing a lot of very expensive damage, but you know, hey, you know, that's it's better than crashing an airplane, you know. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's the worst case. The best case is you just take a few hours off the engine's life, right? Which exactly. Is not you know, not a big deal. But, no. Um, not anyway, if you're so having to pay. Yeah, for it. I, 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 <laughs> I, I sort of know exactly where this crew were. They were. They were trying to do what they thought was right to get off and, um, you know, get the, the trip going and be nice and efficient. And, of course, they fell into a trap. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's an easy trap to fall into. It really is. You just Absolutely. have to constantly remind yourself, okay, you know, I, I, I know that I want to get this thing going right away and let's get this, you know, but you just have to stop and think, okay, you know, smoke the cigarette, wind your watch, um, (laughs) whatever, whatever (laughs) thing that we do to kind of slow everything down and kind of take a couple of steps back and get a bigger picture of what's happening here, uh, is, is the best thing to do. Sure. All right. And this is good news. Um, the Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky says he wants to see a partially built AN Antonov 225 finished to replace the one destroyed in fighting in Hostomel earlier in the war with Russia. It will cost about $800 million to finish the second aircraft, which has been stored in good condition since getting to about 70% completion in 1994. In a speech to students, Zelensky suggested the country can't afford not to build the aircraft. But in this case, it's not a matter of money. It's a matter of ambition, he told the students. This is a question of the image of our country and all the excellent professional pilots who died in this war. Uh, He didn't offer any details on how Ukraine would come up with the money, although I think he did mention at the beginning of this conflict that he was going to send Russia the bill for <laughs> for, for yeah, repairing right the one too. that they destroyed. Uh, yeah. Good luck in getting any money from them. But anyway, uh, presumably it's a post-war project aimed at boosting national pride and honoring the pilots who have served in the war. How many pilots gave their lives to bring everything there from weapons to water and how many wounded they took from there? He said, a large number of these people died heroically to build a Mira, Mira for the sake of the memory of heroes is the right state position and it's the right decision uh for all of us aviation geeks that uh would love to see uh this thing completed and another an-225 flying around the world what a statement oh that would absolutely make. i just know so many enthusiasts who would 
you know, give their right arm to get out and uh, see one, uh, knowing that the biggest aircraft uh, in the world had been destroyed uh, it was a tragedy, and knowing that it might come back again in a in a re- reincarnated would be fantastic. It would be awesome, and hopefully, it'll happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it for our news. It's time for getting to know us. And uh, just a quick mention that uh, we are expecting Dr. Steph to join us at some point. And uh, when she does, we'll have her uh, get all caught up with us or get us all caught up with her. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to talk to Captain Nick and see what he has been up to since our last episode recording, which was what, last Wednesday? So not quite a week ago. Uh, That's right. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Not a huge amount of uh, time has passed. No, <laughs> yeah. it seems not. Um, we're coming up to uh, celebrate the 70th um, uh, anniversary of uh, our Queen coming to the throne in the United Kingdom. So the Jubilee is uh, is right uh, upon us, really, I doubt, tomorrow. But uh, whilst I'm very excited about that, we're going to have a street party uh, just outside, and uh, we'll all be, uh, you know, eating and drinking and enjoying ourselves uh, in, uh, you know, a, a festive spirit. Much more important, tomorrow is uh, Apple Studio Display Day. Yay! So, Yay. Celebrated Yay. across the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So marvelous. I've been waiting uh, many, many weeks uh, to complete the. Uh, Apple Studio computer system that I have. So I have a, a new uh, Apple Studio computer in front of me, and I have been waiting for the display to arrive. So I, I've got some tatty old LG that I'm currently working on, but uh, the proper display will be arriving tomorrow. So I can't so, wait for that. Hey, uh, just out it, of curiosity, how's that machine yeah. uh, performing? Uh, do you notice a well, uh, big difference or not? Uh, in some respects, yes. In many respects, not. Hmm. Uh, uh, so I'm just going, hmm, I wonder if uh, what I can do to, perhaps I haven't got the right uh, drive attached, that sort of thing. Um, and I know I have a slight problem with this drive powering down. Well, not powering down, going to sleep. And hmm. then trying to wake it up every time that I want to do something is turning to be a pain. Hmm. Uh, but... Um, if I could work out how to get that to run a bit more efficiently, that would be great. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it, it is a great piece of kit, but I think uh, the software I, I use needs to be um, written so that we can use the full capability of these fantastic machines. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think they, they, they've quite modified their software so it can use all the cores that are available. But uh, that that well, I'm sure that will come around. Uh, in the meantime, bowling continues, and I've done plenty of that. And so far, been had a pretty good season. So uh, the uh, I, I start falling at fences um, a bit later on in the season. Normally, the first few rounds of most of the competitions are usually uh, okay. It's when you oh, the chaff gets uh, you know culled and uh, you end up playing all the good players that's the whole yeah time. that's when you so, choke huh <laughs> the, exactly i do indeed i do choke um now um i just uh by the by um had uh liz 
point out a lovely message to me of uh, this very morning from uh, a Wait lady. Wait a minute. She um, gives you lovely messages? She does all the time. And no, she, she never does to you? me. No, they're oh, never lovely. Jeff. No, really? I'm just kidding. He's no, I'm just, full of it. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she's now she's giving me a ration. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I would expect so. So um, I, I don't know how many of you will recall the plain tale I did about the U.S. Navy band and the tragic crash that they had um, many years ago now, back in the sixties, uh, uh, in Rio de Janeiro uh, when they were on a, a tour. Um, supporting uh, President Eisenhower uh, on, a, on a goodwill mission to South America. Um, anyway, I got a, a message from a lovely lady who's 70 years old, and she said, uh, Hi, I happened to come across your podcast called The Band Played On. Well, it was one of the plain tales. My father was one of the Navy bandsmen killed that day. I wanted to post the podcast on my timeline since it's Memorial Day. I can't seem to do it. I sent the podcast via messenger to my children, but can't post it on my timeline. Is the way? Is there a way you can send me the link? Thank you. Well, uh, that was from a lovely lady called Dawn, um, daughter of Earl W. Ritchie, a French horn player in the United States Navy Band. And... Um, uh, Liz very quickly, of course, replied with a link. Uh, she added that I was only 10 when the accident happened. My mom pretty much kept the magazine articles and news from me. I don't blame her. Every now and then I stumble across some info about the accident. Thank you so much for your podcast about this. How did you stumble across the event? So I, I, I was immediately taken with this and thought I would reply um, telling her all about Tuba Tony. Uh, and, of course, when I was still flying and doing regular trips to the States, I was into Washington one trip, and uh, I met up with Robert and Tuba Tony and several other uh, lovely listeners. Um, uh, I mentioned Robert because he took me there, but the meat of the story is really Tuba Tony, who um, was a... Uh, a musician with the U.S. Navy Band. I, I'm not sure if he still is or whether he's still on that posting. Anyway, he uh, from his name, you'll you'll guess what instrument he played. Anyway, uh, we had a lovely walk around the Udvahazy Center, and um, it was a year or two later. Toby, still a faithful listener, um, uh, told me about the story of this uh, dreadful crash that occurred during this tour uh, in South America where um, uh, uh, they lost an awful lot of their band members. They, they were on their way to play at an evening um, meal that the president was uh, holding, and uh, so they had a special section of the orchestra was going down there to play, and um, they... Uh, they, they had a mid-air collision. And, um, you know, all the bandsmen that were on board the uh, DC-6 died. Anyway, I I, I told uh, Dawn all about how I found out about the um, the crash and how, uh, you know, uh, she'd obviously heard the plane tail already. And within a couple of hours, I managed to forward a, uh, a recording for her to download and keep so that she can 
send that out to her family. And she replied saying, thank you so much for responding. I'm pretty sure I first heard the tale on the Navy Band social media site because they, uh, Tupatoni was sure to let them know about it and they very kindly um, promoted the podcast about this incident on their website. Um, I was only 10 when the accident happened, but I know quite a few bandsmen. My brother and I would go to work with my father sometimes in the summer while they were rehearsing. Alan and I would play pool in their coffee lounge. We'd sneak coffee and lumps of sugar too. I'm thinking of one particular man whose name was Anthony. Uh, He would send his kids to the same Baptist summer camp as the one we went to. Can't recall his name. I meant to tell you that it took me 38 years to want to fly in an airplane. I had many opportunities to fly, fly, but was afraid. When we sent our youngest daughter to college in Florida is when I finally started flying. I love it now. Yes, I would love to have a copy of the original recording. Uh, from Dawn. So I don't know if you're going to listen to this, Dawn, because uh, um, I I think you've only really connected with the plain tales. But uh, if you do, I wish you well. I hope your family enjoyed that plain tale. It was a special one for me to write, um, a story I'd never heard about, and particularly since it reflected uh, the honour of the US Navy and the servicemen who uh, serve in your country, they're all fine people, and uh, they deserve recognition, particularly since the band, after that appalling tragedy, the band went on to play eight more occasions during that tour around South America, which I think is a remarkable achievement. Very nice, yes. Well, that was a great, great exchange. Uh, glad that she reached out to you. and Absolutely. I'm glad that we were able to... Uh, come up with uh, something satisfying for her. All right. Very good. How about you, Jeff? What's been going on in your life? Absolutely. No, nothing much at all, I think. Nothing. Uh, so I, um, this, I, don't, I don't think we've yet mentioned this uh, yet, but uh, yet, yet. That's kind of a... Um, redundant. Redundant, yes. Uh, this is likely the last... Uh, you did on the last show, you mentioned. Okay, I may have mentioned it on the last show, as I said, but uh, this is probably the last time that I'll be doing a show recording from uh, the cabin here. Uh, so next show and subsequent shows will have a, a little bit different background. Uh, kind of busy with... Uh, not realizing until very, very recently, because I have to move out of this cabin like within um, the next day or so, uh, that I, I, I didn't think I brought that much up here. Uh, but apparently I did. I have all kinds of stuff that, uh, if you look around, uh, I'm not going to show you on camera, but it looks like a bomb went off in here. Um, and I have to make kind of pack everything up, get it into my car and take it down to Roswell and, uh, or, and, or the storage unit, uh, and, uh, then clean this place up and make it look better than it did when I moved in, uh, the beginning of August last year. So, um, going to be busy with that. And I've been busy in prep work for that as well. The last several days, of course, just the normal, uh, post show editing and publishing and that kind and of thing always takes singing. some time. And I did. Yes. Thank you, Liz. Uh, I did some special singing on, um, well, I sang on Saturday, 
uh, for the vigil, and then uh, Sunday morning at the nine, and then at twelve fifteen was a special mass for uh, our, one of the four new priests in the uh, Atlanta Archdiocese, and uh, one of them was our Deacon Avery, a uh, young man who uh, just became a uh, priest, who is now Father Avery, and. Um, he, for um, his special mass, wanted the choir to sing, and he only asked for one thing, and it was uh, Talis is the uh, English composer, and uh, the work is called If Ye Love Me, and we sang that during the presentation as he prepared the altar for uh, communion, and, um, and it was beautiful. I think we did a really, really nice job in uh, singing that special piece for him. So it was a very special day of singing. And then, uh, yeah, so that's what I did on Sunday. And then, of course, Sunday is one of the biggest days for motorsports fans because you have a big um, NASCAR uh, uh, Charlotte 600 race or Coca-Cola 600. I think they still probably call it the Coca-Cola. The Indianapolis 500, the Indy 500 race. And then in the morning, uh, for us here in the U.S. anyway, uh, Monaco, the uh, Formula One race. So uh, it's like a uh, triple crown for motorsports um, on that day. And I didn't get to see any of it in real time. Uh, I only caught some of the highlights of the various races because uh, not only busy singing and involved in the church, but I also helped out my choir director. Um, She followed me to the airport because her husband was coming back from a two-week trip from Italy, and she wasn't sure about exactly where to go to pick him up and Anyway, telling people where to go. So, yeah. No, that's not true, Liz. She said, you're really good at telling people where to go. Uh, But uh, so I spent uh, the afternoon basically uh, uh, just kind of making sure she knew where to go and where to pick up her husband and that kind of thing. So got back to the uh, cabin kind of late Sunday night, but it was a very, very uh, great day. It was a great day. And here we are um, recording again. Steph is in the green room. Oh, Steph is in the green room. Look at that. We don't even really have a green room, but sort of, I guess. He's right there. So We have a going green room. Hey, look at that. Steph's here. Yay. I think it's the green room. Well, it is kind of a green room. Backstage. It's kind of back. No, this room is like probably blue. blue. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, Um, I forgot what color they called this one. Hi. I can remember the co- the um, paint color of the guest room when I painted it. It was called Careless Whisper. Careless Whisper. Yes. <laughs> what, what color is that? I'm it's just... a very light pink. Oh, <laughs> like okay. pale pink. Almost you can't tell you it's know, pink. They could just like call it pale pink. pink. They could, but they... Careless Whisper got my attention and I bought it. Oh, and then I remembered sexy. it. Ooh, that's sexy. Fair enough. <laughs> I know. Very George Michael. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, what have you been doing? Yeah, what have you been up to, Steph? Since you just now joined us, yeah. I've, today I was working a lot. Um, sorry for my tardiness. A very long day. Still, um, still kind of playing catch up from when we had some equipment issues a previous week or two ago. Um, we're still, you know, kind of overbooking a little bit in an attempt to not make people wait too long for their procedures that they've been anticipating and, and wanting to get done. So it just. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't bad today. It just was a little longer than I usually plan on. Um, it was good. I heard you guys talking about um, some of that. Um, obviously, Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, and mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of 
flying and jumping this weekend, which was good. We had beautiful weather for a change. It's been kind of a windy slash, if it's not windy, it's rainy or some other reason why we can't, you know, get out in the, the sky and play around, but just pleasantly warm, sunny, no and, wind. And dry too. It was dry, super yeah. humid. It felt like yeah. a real and spring day. Finally. Like, uh, today feels like summer. It's like 90 oh, yeah. degrees it's, outside it's right now. And I'm, summer, I'm yeah. like crispy <laughs> from driving home. Yeah. Um, Yesterday, um, with my neighbors and a bunch of other friends, we had a day out on the lake, which was very nice. We went in their pontoon boat and beached ourselves on an island and had uh, grilled out, had a bunch of burgers and um, skewers with veggies and shrimp and and some jerk chicken. That was about the spiciest thing I've ever consumed next to a reaper pepper chip. Oh, really? Oh, this was spicy. This was like, oh, okay, my sinuses are clear 100 percent now mm-hmm. um like had to jump in the water to cool off from the, the spicy chicken mm. um so we did that and there's a bridge nearby that we kind of went over to and you can jump off of the bridge near the power plant where the water is nice and extra warm um did that a bunch of times and yeah, went glowing. to a f- <laughs> glowing yeah that's 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 not sun that's very different type of radiation um then uh Went to a friend's son's um, graduation party last night, high school graduation party. That was that was good, entertaining. They live on a, a farm. They have lots of horses. and they, I didn't know that, but they have a donkey, so made friends with the donkey. The donkey was very friendly. Um, and more good food, great company. So it's 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 been good. Um, aside from um, bugs, I don't know, I guess the lack of like... I guess just being outside more. I haven't been outside enough, but I got attacked by bugs this weekend. There's one like, if you can see it on the side of my. Oh yeah, I still see the bug. Yeah, there. you should probably. Yeah, swat the bug that is still there. Away. I should probably remove the bug. <laughs> but there's that one. I got two more on my arm here, and on Saturday, I picked up my soda to take a drink from it. Had a straw in the the oh, lid, boy. and apparently there was a bee in the straw, and I sucked the bee up, and it either I'm pretty sure it just bit my tongue. I don't think it stung me. But the very, uh, like, very tip of my tongue was tingly for about an hour afterwards. Mm. Didn't swell or anything, but it was a weird sensation. Oh, so it's been an insect. That's not a surprise weekend. you want to have. No, I, it, it was not fun. It was not. Mm. I, didn't, I don't recommend. But I don't think I could have, I would have seen it. It was pretty well in there. You mm. know, I would have had to, like, actually inspect, which I'm definitely not going to do every time I take a sip of soda. Just one of those things. I was wondering what it was like from the bee. Did he think it was a, a flume? At a I don't know what happened to the bee. I spit it out <laughs> and then it was gone. <laughs> the bee's thinking, dang, that was not a fun ride at all. I was not. I no, just wanted, no, he's like, I just wanted some of the sugary sweet soda. It looks like perfect. <laughs> and then next thing I know, like, <laughs> yep. Ow. Just like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. good job he didn't swallow it. Did not swallow it. Well, I have a question yep. for you, Steph, at that, mm. uh, that little farm, uh, Thing. Yes. Uh, did you ride that ass? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm laughing because I did not, but a friend of mine did, and I think that's the picture I sent. Yeah, and we, we, saw we that definitely picture. made some some commentary to uh, that effect. He was, and when I say ass, aware. I mean donkey. Donkey, donkey. Yes, a small donkey, kind a of a, a, a small burrito, ass. <laughs> a burrito, a little donkey. Yeah, it was cute. So, yeah, it was cute. Super cute. Yeah. Super friendly too. She was just really sweet. She just was like. She just wanted to stand right next to you and have you scratch kind of behind her ears the whole mm-hmm. time. Oh. Well, oh, she's sweet. Yeah. I'm sorry. But, oh, yes. Let's, uh, why am I having a hard time hearing you now? Would you do something different? Try that? Is that yeah, right? I can hear you better now. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, so uh, Liz is saying, hey, maybe we should. Oh, look, is that not obvious what I should do next? Oh, there you go. Uh, the uh, cover art from our last episode, uh, episode number 522. And uh, it was entitled The Show with No Name. <laughs> and uh, there's a. I guess that's the horse with no name. Is that what's going on here, or is that just our? Well, the desert. If you if you know the song by America, mm-hmm. that could yep. be. But this is more like the man with no name, mm-hmm. uh, which was a Clint uh, Eastwood character uh, in spaghetti westerns. Ah. He became known as the man with no name, um, and we talked a lot about uh, drinking. Mm-hmm. And we t- talked a bit about uh, we always do. We did. <laughs> executive pilot who had a bit of a, uh, <laughs> a bit of drink. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That was just a, the real a few of the bottles that up, he yeah, discarded. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Plenty of bottles there. The real reason I came up with that show title was um, when I woke up in the morning uh, expecting to see uh, all the suggestions all I got was a message from Liz saying I had to go to bed. <laughs> so she, <laughs> I, she, I don't have any titles for you right now. So I mean, they did arrive later, but I sat there going, "Ah, oh, okay." My fault. Well, so I'll here's here's no we name had then. two alternate titles for you, which were just summarily discarded. But like, we also discussed no, the fact made- that we come up with all these great title and cover art ideas and you usually just poo-poo every single one of them so we figure <laughs> we'll just you want let anyway. him do whatever art he comes <laughs> up with and we'll just come up with a title well these did come up with all your suggestions eventually but by yeah. that time i'd already done this artwork so I well thought, it looks well, perfect to me yeah i like, I like it. it i like the color too and i like <laughs> the, the I, it sort of looks like a little uh, dc9 uh, flying off into the sunset yep and mm-hmm. uh, the cowboy's about to ride over a cliff, I thought. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, it does look like it. Watch yeah. out. Yeah. Lots of bottles yeah. there. Well, the, the, other, the other title suggestions were The Last Funyun and Leaving the Gears Behind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah they were they were very good, actually. I could well have done those, except I've already done this one. So, like, well, I'm not going to do another one. He's too impatient. <laughs> yeah. We don't blame you. We don't blame I you. I've got things one. to do, people to see. Busy. <laughs> All right. Okay. That was great. You want to do the coffee fun now? Yes, sir. Okay. Sure. And remember, we have uh, one in the overlays for the yes, Patreon. Okay. I'm ready. Dun, dun, dun. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I'll take some. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, I'm holding up this cup that I got from going to the um, Opposing Bases a special oh, 200th episode. Quality or what? Yeah, this is. Uh, I don't know if you listen to their show. They uh, they talk about uh, don't don't wash the uh, mug because all the uh, printing will fall off. Well, there's evidence of it right there. You get what you pay for. I didn't pay anything for it. Anyway, coffee fund. Let's focus, Jeffrey. Uh, a couple different ways to do it. We have the uh, OG, the Coffee Fun Classic method. And uh, since the last episode, we had some recurring donations. Thank you very much, uh, but no one-off. So we're going to move on to Patreon. And uh, we have a new producer, Dan S. Uh, he is a new uh, patron via Patreon. If you want to learn how to join him and all the other wonderful folks that uh, contribute to our Coffee Fun, please Take a look at 
the AirlinePilotGuy.com website, AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee, if you want to go directly to the page, which explains how all of this works. We would really be happy if you do that. Thank you very much, all of you, for your continued generous support. We do appreciate it. And now is time for some feedback. Captain, incoming message. Why don't we do? Um, why don't we do, do one piece? Short one of and feedback. something that's Nick specific, maybe. If there's anything, yeah. Then... yeah. Uh, well, I think no, number. I don't know of anything. Yeah, you yeah, do. Uh, I think we're going <laughs> to jump to number 16, uh, which is way down the list. And it's something that we just received, I believe, today. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is a sent in from uh, Kevin. And uh, she's, uh, he says, a, a woman oh, – oh, hang on. Uh, where is this from? New York Post, although it says it's li- written by Liam Coleman from The Sun. I guess maybe The New York Both Post and The Rupert Sun. Murdoch. Oh, okay. There you go. They are uh, affiliated. Uh, the, uh, the headline is woman sexually attracted to planes wants to marry a toy Boeing. But Kevin said he really wants to hear. What but, oh yes. Yeah. Kevin says that he really wants to hear Captain Nick's reaction to this article. Now, those of you who have been listening to our show for a while will remember that we kind of covered, uh, an article very similar to this, uh, back in, I think it was August of 2020, not that long ago. Uh, another woman, another German woman. I don't know what's going on with the German um, females. Can we say that female uh, gender? Is that something I can say or Get not? Your pronouns. The pronouns. Anyway, uh, so let me tell you about Sarah Rodo. Uh, there's a picture of her um, holding her uh, 737, her boyfriend. Um, a woman in love with a plane insists her desire is not a flight of fancy. Oh, 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 oh that's cute. I like that. Uh, Clever writing. Yeah, she flies on the aircraft as often as possible and has 50 replica models of the plane at home. Sarah calls the Boeing Dicky and hopes to wed one day, even though it is illegal in Germany. The Dortmund resident identifies as objectum sexual, meaning that she is sexually attracted to inanimate objects. I mean, who isn't? Uh, She said past romances with men didn't get her flying high. (laughs) Well, uh, maybe it was the choice of man. I don't know. Uh, She's also been in love with a train. (laughs) Wow. Um, I love everything about Dickie. So she's not even faithful to airplanes or trains. I know. That's a bit She's of a multi, all over the place. Multi-object and sexual. <laughs> Show title. I think it's called uh, pluralism. Plural, plural. She's it's not a, a monogamous, uh, not an a uh, no. inanimate monogamous monogamous. Easy for you to relation. Say. No, it's not easy for me to say, Liz. Um, but here's what she said: I love everything about him, particularly his face, wings, and engine. They're so sexy to me. What part of the airplane is the face? Uh, the, for the the the. The, the, the fuselage or the, the the cockpit area, of course, oh, right? Okay. Yeah, I where suppose. the eyes are. Yeah, um, <laughs> and the nose. <laughs> and the nose. Yeah, uh, that would be more obvious, actually. Uh, yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, so she hopes to wed uh, her her Boeing Dicky uh, someday. And uh, what have you shown any images yet, Liz? I have not yet. Jeff. Okay, well here. 
<laughs> Here we go. Let's see what we have. I'm getting there. I got to do okay. a little bit of... Sure. Here we Take go. your time. Okay, here we go. All right. Aw, look, a nice little cuddle uh, in in her bed. Um, oh, speaking of... Um, racy. Oh, that's, that's a very, raunchy. very racy... Uh, that airplane has no clothes on. No, it's and, naked, and naked. pretty much she doesn't either. Uh, she's in her lingerie. And then uh, here, here's another picture of her uh, cuddling her, uh, her, her, dickie her dickie and uh, her airplane. And uh, yeah, so um, I don't know, Nick. Uh, so Kevin is wondering what, uh, what you have to say about this. <laughs> well, there's a famous Boeing saying, um, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't coming. So I think that probably applies. Uh, I don't think that's quite right. Um, Are you I think sure? It, yeah. I well, think, I think I, I I seem to think that Dickie would approve of that. Well, I do have some audio from um, one of the uh, intimate encounters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you had to hear now, that. Now Neil's got a couple of comments <laughs> yeah. here. Uh, Neil says it's, it's very not, explicit. It's not the women. Uh, we need to worry about German men if aircraft are a better alternative. <laughs> well, that's, you have a yeah, point. That is a worry. Yeah. Oh, he says. He also says she's in love with long, hard objects. Indeed. Well, well you know what they say: oh, a sorry. hard man is good to find. And I haul boxes. Oh, I haul boxes. I of course. I think we're. Mixing up our sayings. Here. Does she like anyway. firewall thrust? <laughs> hmm. And Deanna. And Deanna. Oh my goodness! Excuse oh, me, ma'am. That is not what a pedo tube is for. <laughs> oh, that's oh a wow. Worry. Deanna. Ooh. Oh my. Nice. I like it. <laughs> so we'll be looking for the wedding notice. Now. Yeah, we'll be looking for the wedding invitation. Um, I'm sure they'll send one to APG since we highlighted uh, this romance. Well, I, I wish her uh, all the best in her new relationship. Me too. Me too. Is this not the only one? Are there two stories here, Liz? Well, no. This this I added the same person. I added the second one because oh, that I was one that we covered before. Yeah, a couple. Of that's years right. Ago. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Michelle. But the the thing that I thought was odd. Uh, let's see. Um, Sarah is from Dortmund, and uh, Michelle is from and, Berlin. Uh, Michelle is from Berlin, but they're both German. Um, citizens and i'm wondering what's going on over there in germany both 737s they really like too. the 737 they really like those bombings i was curious comment. to know what would happen if the two 737s started having a relationship and yeah. dumped the girls <laughs> it'd be a scandal it'd be a that would, wouldn't it? you know just uh, and, and, and looking at some of the pictures from the uh the second article um i see some very similar similarities um, a lot of similarities yeah. let me see i'm going to uh share uh, i know it's going to take a little extra time but oh, just bear both with me yeah. uh window i think there's a little bit of um copycat copycats or uh i don't possibly know. um oh shoot i'm sorry i just messed that up let me try that again. Um, that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> or that's what he said to her. Uh, here we go. Add to stream. Okay. So there's uh, Sarah uh, with her um, her friend Dickie. And, uh, oh, shoot. I can't uh, scroll. I need to find that window. That's exactly the same picture, um, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. But, I, but I'm trying to find the the one that uh, the very similar one from the, the article from one. five years ago yeah. or however many years ago. Oh, I know what I need to do. I need to go over here like this. You remember that? And window. And uh, here we go. Now I'll scroll this down to our uh, previous one. She's 30 years old, not 23. And uh, here we go. This is the one that kind of reminded me of the um, very similar. Yeah. Ah, that's Michelle and Schatz. <laughs> Correct. If you say so. Well, does that mean Schatz the bed? It's apparently the name she gives to mm. her 737. Schatz the bed. Here she's fondling the yoke. I really like it when women do that. Okay. <laughs> um, I can't make any comments in this story. <laughs> this series sure of stories is very few. <laughs> nope. I'm just going to let you guys okay, know. I'm probably just, best. I'm just bemused. But there you go. Yeah, I'm thank, with you, Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin, for uh, for that, I guess. And All thank right. you very much for making me sit around and endure that. You're welcome. You're <laughs> welcome. It was directed to him. Yes. I mean, it wasn't our fault. It was Kevin's. Yeah. Yeah, All right. Okay. Um, now I'm. I have not listened. I have to admit, I have it's not listened one. to your uh, plain tale for this week. But all I can think about is nice beaver. Um, let's I knew see. That was coming. Uh, <laughs> this week's plain tale from the old pilot is entitled "The Eager Beavers." Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plain tale. The Eager Beavers It was an unpopular aircraft because, well, when you're flying in the Second World War, a lot of aircrew were superstitious. They were renowned for carrying lucky charms, doing things a certain way, and never daring to change the habit because it worked for them last time. Some wouldn't wash their lucky socks or underwear to the dismay of their flying companions, but luckily at high altitude everyone was on oxygen. This machine was a B-17 nicknamed Old 666, taken from the last three digits of its tail number, 412666. Any damage done during missions, and there was quite a bit over the years, just strengthened the feelings that this was an unlucky ship. That was until a remarkable pilot and his loyal crew came along. Jay Zima was initially commissioned into the infantry reserve, but he always had a dream of flying, so he transferred into the Army Air Corps. He desperately wanted to become a pilot, and he partially fulfilled that dream, except he didn't pass the flying test that would qualify him for the pilot's seat. Instead, he ended up stuck as a co-pilot on Marauders. He went along with it, he had little alternative, and after flying on anti-submarine and reconnaissance patrols off the west coast of California, he was deployed to Australia but he was still assessed as having issues with slow reaction times and a lack of aggressiveness on the controls. Promoted to lieutenant, he applied for a transfer to the 43rd Bombardment Unit in a little Australian town called Torrens Creek in Queensland. There was little to be said of this small settlement. It had a few inhabitants and still today only 70, one pub and was nearly 1,000 miles north of the state capital, Brisbane. 
J. Zima was assigned to the 403rd Squadron and onto the B-17. Unqualified on the Flying Fortress, he had to act as the squadron errand boy before he could even scrounge flights as a substitute co-pilot or navigator. He did well when, on one trip, he had to take over from the first pilot and carry on with the mission. His coolness under fire earned him the Silver Star for his actions and also served as his first pilot checkout. Zima was considered a bit of a renegade and he began to gather a like-minded crew around him who reflected his no-nonsense attitude, but this didn't stop them from being a highly effective band of fighting men. Jay was the sort of man who hung around operations looking for opportunities to fly on every mission that came available until he and his crew were nicknamed the Eager Beavers. In his spare time, he put his crew through their paces with extra practice like shooting at logs in the water, stripping and reassembling the big guns blindfolded and learning the duties of other crew members so that they could take over should someone be injured. Pretty soon, this kind of leadership began to sort the chaff from the wheat as those who found the extra training too arduous moved elsewhere. Pretty soon... Zima and his friend Joe Sarnowski felt that they had the makings of a good crew, men who were capable and keen to fight. Their expectations were proved right, and to a man they were practical and easygoing, not brash, which fitted him well with their leader. Zima's instincts proved correct, and on one of their first missions together, they sank an 8,000-ton Japanese transport ship, an auspicious start which won all the crew air medals and did much to solidify their confidence in each other. They deployed to Port Moresby in New Guinea, where their progress was interrupted by a major Japanese bombing raid on their base at Milne Bay that destroyed a number of their precious supply of aircraft. Thanks to that and the sickness that had been ravaging the squadron since it moved to Malaria Bay, they were moved away from the combat zone back to Australia. Back in civilization, the men got away from tents, away from air raids and sickness, food from barrels, showers under oil drums, insects and rats. Some got to Sydney and the beach. By the time their leave was over, they were rejuvenated. Jay was now the squadron executive officer, and he was looking for an aircraft that the eager beavers could call their own. He found it in a corner of the airfield, old 666. Shunned by the other crews, this would be the perfect machine to adopt and bring into the loving fold of his crew. It was a photo-reconnaissance version of the B-17, and he had some ideas on how to adapt it for the sort of mission he was likely to fly. Handymen all, the beavers worked on the plane largely on their own, officers and enlisted men together, for the next two months in their spare time, with some help from the ground crews. They scrounged from other planes to replace the old rattly engines with new ones, and stripped out over £2,000 of parts and armour they didn't want, like cartridge belts and ammunition feed equipment. 
They'd feed them in directly from boxes of two fifty, fifty calibre rounds set beneath the guns. Photographic mapping required straight and level flight for an extended period, allowing for no evasive manoeuvres. For Zima's crew, then, it was all about speed and being able to defend themselves, so the beavers made sure they had plenty to defend themselves with. When they were finally done with Old 666, they had given the name Flying Fortress a new meaning. The plane bristled with 16 50 caliber guns, including twin 50s in the radio hatch as well as the waist, plus a single 50 Jay had installed on the bombardier's deck through the nose cone just for him to fire. Then came the mission that made all the work they'd done worthwhile. The crew were asked to fly a solo 1,200-mile, 1,900-kilometre round-trip photo-mapping mission of the western coast of Bougainville, a vital task before any invasion could be considered. It was presented as a volunteer mission because the extended mapping run would require a straight and level flight for up to 22 minutes deep through hostile territory in broad daylight. The eager beavers were, of course, first in the queue. It took two months before the weather was suitable and then, the day before, an extra task was added on. Command wanted a recon of the Japanese airstrip at Buka, a small island off the northern tip of Bougainville. Zima realised that it was almost guaranteed to wake up any Japanese fighters based there and declined to take the additional risk. Again, as they were taxiing out, the request was made and again Zima refused. He was still intent on ignoring the order when he set the flying fortress to head north by northeast shortly after 4am the next morning. It struck him, not for the first time, how difficult it was to target even familiar islands over dark stretches of the featureless Pacific Ocean. Every one of his crew recognised the importance of this mission as the next step to the Southwest Pacific campaign yet flying over so great an expanse made them feel lonely and small. Three hours later, a thin sliver of sun appeared in the east just as Bougainville's coastline came into view, a finger of land surrounded by glistening dark waters. Zima looked at his watch, thirty minutes ahead of schedule. It would still be another thirty to forty-five minutes before the light would be strong enough to provide the proper exposure for the camera's infrared filters. He mulled his options over in his mind and thought again at Command's extra request, the recce of the airstrip. It niggled him that he had had to refuse. He turned on the intercom and spoke to his crew, laying out their options. He could turn old 666 northwest and kill the extra time out over the Solomon Sea, safe. Or he could set a course due north and arrive over Buka Passage just as the sun was high enough to photograph the Japanese airfield before heading on to their main objective. As top turret gunner Johnny Abel later explained, 
We thought so much of Captain Zima and had such trust in him and his ability that we didn't give a damn where we went, just so long as he wanted to go there. Anything okay by him was okay by us. Or, as Zima interpreted the collective response from his crew that morning, Oh, what the hell, let's take their goddamn reconnaissance photos. We've done it before. Zima lined up old 666 and ran over the airfield at 25,000 feet. In the back, the cameras were whirring away, capturing images of the ground below. He judged that, at his best speed, by the time the Japanese got airborne and climbed up to his altitude, he would be safely passed. His belly gunner, Dillman, broke the bad news. They had already been spotted, and the fighters below were starting their engines. It took a long minute before they could turn and line up for their run down the coast. As they did, Zima got the word that about twenty fighters had been taking off below them. He wiped his brow and held the B-17 on course, the camera's intervalometer ticking away in the cockpit. The tail gunner reported seeing more fighters getting airborne from Bougainville's main airfield when Zima spotted the first wave of green zeros climbing and circling around old 666 before closing in and then swerving away as the B-17's formidable firepower drove them off. They circled around to make a frontal attack where the bomber was most vulnerable. The vibration and noise from the cannons in the aircraft was deafening, and a zero span away, but then a Japanese 20mm shell burst through the nose, exploding in the cockpit. The force blew Sarnowski, the bombardier front gunner, back 15 feet, and Johnston, the navigator, off his chair. When he recovered, he grabbed Sarnowski and tried to treat his wounds, covering them with sulphur powder, but he had a rip in his neck and a big hole in his side. I'm all right, Sarnowski managed to say. Don't worry about me, as he crawled back to his guns, leaving a trail of blood from his wounds. Another zero was coming, and Zima lined up the B-17 and fired the gun that they had mounted in the nose, and the top turret joined in, but they were hit again, with the instrument panel exploding in front of him, and his rudder bar was blown away from his feet as more control cables were cut. Four cannon shells had entered the cockpit. The windshield was intact, but windows and the aircraft's skin on the left side had completely disappeared. When the shock wore off, Zima felt the fire of pain grow in his legs, which were sliced and burned like bacon, whilst his left leg was broken. His arms had been peppered by shrapnel, and an artery spurted with each beat of his heart. Beside him, his co-pilot, who had slumped over, lifted his head and groaned. The intercom had failed, plus the oxygen and hydraulic systems had been hit, so Zima told him to crawl back and get a damage report. Zima had just a few instruments left, the manifold pressure gauges and a compass. There was a fire from the oxygen system which three of the crew had to tackle with rags and their bare hands, leaving them badly burnt. With no oxygen available, 
Zima had to get down, so he put the B-17 into a steep dive until the rivets were rattling, until he estimated that he was low enough to breathe. The Zeros followed them down, the tail gunner counting at least 17. The fighters swung in at an alarming rate and riddled the fuselage with machine gun fire, flashing past so close that they almost hit them, but again and again they fought them off. In the front, Zima's hands were bloody and kept slipping from the controls and his legs felt numb in the icy wind. His co-pilot was treating the other injured crew and kept coming back to plead with Zima to let him treat his wounds, but he refused, even though his boots had filled up with blood. After 40 minutes of attacks, the Japanese fighters, low on fuel and ammunition, eventually began to peel away, and the eager beavers began their long return journey. Zima considered his options. He could ditch, but the boys needed medical care, and he was desperate to bring the precious film that had cost them so much back home. Even if he could keep old 666 flying for another four hours, he could never be able to clear the Owen Stanley mountain range that lay between him and their base. Their only hope was a grass strip in the jungle at Dobadura, 90 miles east of Port Moresby. Behind him, in the fuselage, it was a carnage of spent ammunition cases, burnt-out barrels, blood and bandages. Zima was getting worse, and eventually Britain, his co-pilot, took over when they spotted the lush coastline of Dobadura. The airfield was only 25 miles away. He lined the crippled B-17 up, and without flaps, as the palm trees and rickety old control tower flashed past, he knew he was coming in fast. They hit the dirt hard, bouncing three times. With no brakes, the end of the runway was coming up fast, so Britain dragged the control wheel over with all his strength, ground-looping the B-17 as its left wing dug into the dirt. Eight hours after their departure, they were finally back in friendly arms as they were helped off the aircraft. Zima was falling in and out of consciousness, but finally strong hands lifted him out of his seat. Old 666 had done them proud, getting them home despite five cannon shell hits and 187 holes from the Zero's machine gun. Despite all the damage, only four of the crew were wounded, but sadly there was also one death, that of Joe Sarnowski. Zima awoke in a small field hospital, where the doctors had removed nearly 150 pieces of shrapnel and various bits of old 666 from his legs, arms and torso. Fourteen days later, the invasion of Bougainville began. For their valour, the newly promoted Major J. Zima and Joe Sarnowski were awarded the Medal of Honour. The seven other crewmen were each awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the nation's second highest military commendation for heroism. 
escape old 666's crew the distinction of becoming and remaining the most highly decorated combat crew in American military service, having flown the most highly decorated single air mission. Wow, another crazy plane tale. Mm-hmm. Never heard this story, and nope. that was incredible. He was able to fly the airplane with all that shrapnel oh, and everything else in him. Yeah, uh, and um, the fact that this, what you know, this crew became the most highly decorated uh, crew in uh, history in the United States and remains so to this day. I thought mm. was quite incredible um and um you know it it's a story i hadn't heard so yeah. i'm and we still well, surprised to be that highly highly decorated i don't think yeah. that many people know it no i know and i thought it I was a, it. a great story because th- these guys were rebels i mean uh the <laughs> the zima their um the their pilot and uh their leader uh, was renowned for being insubordinate and um, just doing his own thing. Uh, and, you know, I think he, people despaired of him. But, of course, he turned out to be an incredibly well-organized, great leader, and a very brave man. So, um, you know, you just got to take your hat off to him. I think it's a brilliant story. Um, so, you know, when I, when I caught a hold of it, I thought, oh, this will make a good one. Old 666, huh? Good comment from Micah there. Micah, main uh, man yeah, Micah, uh, yeah. says, my uncle actually was... actually renamed on, it Lucy, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. It was known as Old 666 until then, I guess, huh? Yeah. Uh, main man Micah from our live audience says, my uncle was on Bougainville. That's oh, where really? he was wounded and pulled off the line. Oh, well, wow. Well, there you go. That's a, it's amazing how these things link up, isn't it? Because, uh, yeah, I understand it was quite a battle to take that island. Um, and these boys uh, took an enormous risk. You, you sometimes don't know what goes on behind the, uh, you know, the story behind an invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just one of many that, uh, you know, risked their lives to uh, get the information needed to be able to pull off uh, you know, that invasion. I did notice that several people in our live audience were suspicious about our choice of the feedback. <laughs> the order uh, in which they the, were. And the order in which oh, we absolutely. presented them. Uh, the, it was uh, completely two, innocent. I, yeah, yeah. I promise. It was random. Yeah, it was just random. <laughs> was not planned. I mean, how could you plan for it? Never. You know? I didn't no, even no, know what the, the title of the plane tale was until they came up. So there yeah, That's right. But I we all like an eager beaver, that's for sure. That is absolutely true. All right. Is he off yeah. to bed now? Yes, uh, Nick. Are you uh, going to leave us? And uh, well, if if I may, if it's not a problem, not because, a problem. Uh, I, I just got to get my head down today and uh, uh, look forward to joining you all next week. Um, Tell and him I'll, try I'll to get him some look for something else to uh, hopefully, pardon me, interest you. And Liz says that she will try to get you uh, some type of a show title. And some ideas for cover art, uh, hopefully before you get to bed. Nick's going to well, just do something include, right now and just and we'll just call it a day. We'll exactly. just make some kind <laughs> of title. Just tell him to yeah. do yes, whatever he wants. If it doesn't include uh, a very happy looking beaver, I'll be a bit Well, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably going to be at the top of the list. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. 
All right. Yeah, well, absolutely. All right, you, guys. I'll catch you next week. Really enjoyed that one. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Sleep well. Thanks. All yes. the best. Crush it at bowls Bye. tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye. Jeff, do you want to loop back to the uh, twin otter? Or yeah. The oh, yeah. Uh, when yeah. I don't know if you were listening, Steph, 1C. when we were talking nope. about um, news item 1C, which involved a Terra Air uh, de Havilland uh, DHC 6300 twin otter. Uh, and they ended up crashing into the side of a mountain. And uh, uh, we were just uh, thinking, hmm, we know somebody. And somebody even in our live audience said, uh, well, it's too bad we don't have a twin otter expert uh, with us on the show right now, but there's a picture of the crash scene. Um, and apparently there were some of the mountain tops uh, were kind of obscured uh, by yeah, cloud yeah. and uh, they, it looks like controlled flight into terrain to me. Yeah. Um, aircraft specific. Issue and you were, we were talking about the fact Nick was saying, you know, and if you were in a fighter and you just, you know, pour the coals and you point the nose up and you get altitude <laughs> very quickly and you don't have to worry about it. But I'm thinking, or I even mentioned that the twin otter probably doesn't have the same kind of, it doesn't have that kind of performance. But it's I mean, kind of especially suited for this kind of terrain and kind of flying, right? Tight. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, radius. you can you can put it into a lot of um, you know tight locations, short takeoff and landing capabilities for sure, or relatively short takeoff and landing with with decent payload. So it's good for getting into some of these mountainous locations. That's why they fly it in places like um, like Papua New Guinea and stuff, where you have to kind of land basically on the side of the mountain in these short, unimproved fields with terrain all around. It's, right. it's pretty good for that. All right. Well, um, I think now we can move to our feedback section again. And this has been in our feedback for at least two, maybe three uh, yep. episodes. And we're finally getting to it, Jonathan. See, if you're going to send in feedback, just don't despair if we haven't gotten to it. Because nope. we are probably yes. going to get to it maybe eventually. Maybe. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> There's a I shot. <laughs> At least a 50% so you're saying chance. there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Good one. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Uh, Jonathan sent us this, as we just mentioned. Quite a near miss at MSP, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Twin Cities uh, Airport in Minnesota. Um, and uh, let's see, this, I think he sent this in on April 25th, so a little bit more than a month ago. It was the sort of weekend that might be best described as sporty here in MSP. Winds gusting into the upper 50s, lots of low clouds, often on rain, including some downpours. Not exactly ideal flying or spotting conditions. But as they say in show business, the show must go on. A local spotter got this video of a Delta A220 trying to make a landing on runway 22 at MSP, itself a rare treat. Runway 422 is usually no-tamed closed unless wind or other conditions necessitate its use. As you can see, the plane narrowly missed a, a tail strike and then narrowly missed a runway departure. Fortunately, things turned out fine. A go-around go was performed and a safe and eventual landing was made a few minutes later. Here are my questions for you based on what you can tell from the video and, of course, anything Jeff might have heard from fellow pilots at this Acme sister first? carrier. Yeah, I do want to show the video first. Um, and so let me go over here. And I think it's you this got it queued up there yet. one right, right here. There, yeah. yeah, okay, here we go. 
Here's a Delta 2289 coming in, coming in from DCA, uh, Washington National, into Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's an A220-300, the little bigger version of the uh, Airbus A220. Knee. C-Series. Uh, C-Series, uh, Bombardier CS300, I think. And it's coming in uh, for landing on runway 22. You can tell it's being pushed around a little bit by the gusty wind. It does winds. look sporty. Yeah, pretty sporty. Coming down, coming down. It's over the threshold. Now starting to flare. Oop, no, the Ooh. nose goes forward really hard. And then is arrested, and it comes down kind of hard on the main gear. And then the, ooh, wow. Oh, so close. Did you see how close that tail yeah. was to hitting the runway? Oh, yeah. And I've watched this several times. And, like, stopped it and paused it there to see. And it's. And what's interesting, I think, is I didn't realize this because I don't fly this airplane, but this airplane was designed with a system to help prevent tail strikes. And I think as we watch this uh, in slow motion, watch the, um, watch the elevator and the stabilizer back in the back as it, okay, the nose starts coming up and then the tail starts getting really close to the runway. And then right here, yep. it, it, right there. it kind of moves up to force the nose down so that the tail doesn't hit the runway. So I think there's some kind of an active uh, tail strike prevention system in the controls logic. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And this is them coming back around for another go at it after they did a successful go around. So they and did what the uh, other plane in Exeter should have done. Yes. Uh, Liz says that these folks did what the plane that had the hard landing in Exeter should have done, which is go around. Go around. Things aren't looking right or are unstable. And uh, here we go. We're coming in. This is looking much better. Maybe the winds have died down the a little bit. The sun's coming out. Yeah, the sun's coming up a little, uh, out a little bit. And uh, they're coming down. No bobbling. And a nice touchdown. Happy Phew. ending. Yes. Yeah. All right. And not off the left side of the runway this time either. Did you notice yeah, that in the first one? They were yeah, very close to the, that left yeah, edge of the runway. Yeah, it was kind of close to the edge. That's for sure. All right. So. Uh, let's go back to um, Evernote and look at his questions. Did the go around cause the near runway excursion cause, uh, or is the near excursion simply baked in when the go around was underway? It was just the way that the go around was executed, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say it caused the excursion, but it was a complication and a demanding situation uh control wise to keep the airplane you know going straight down the runway uh, anything else to say about that one stuff no and i you know i don't know exactly do we have the winds in there no we don't yeah. so i don't know exactly what the winds were doing but yeah. i don't think that was much of an issue either no at least not because if they were using 2-2 i would imagine they're they're going it's pretty close down of, straight down the runway down, yeah exactly i would think so uh is there anything the pilots could have done earlier to stick the landing here Again, that was such a dynamic fluid situation. I'm not sure what caused the nose to come down so suddenly, if that was control input or if that was wind shear or if that was... I don't, yeah, I can't I don't tell know. either. It's hard no. to tell, so um, maybe not. Yeah. Um, a pilot in one of the local aviation groups said the A220 has go-around protections. Okay, here you go. And pointed to the quick, precise down elevator input as being a key to avoiding the tail strike. Are you familiar with that and how it works? No, I, as I said, I didn't even know that that was 
there was such a system and until I saw this and read your question regarding it. So that's pretty cool. And uh, I would imagine that there's some kind of a sensor there, but pro- probably is looking at the um, uh, deck angle and uh, it knows to the ground. how close that tail is uh, to the mm-hmm. to the runway. And uh, at a certain point, it'll probably just kick in and provide that little bit of aerodynamic yeah. help. I mean, it was, it was still very close. Oh, very. Yeah, very, probably very like close. probably less inches. than an inch <laughs> or maybe just inches. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything the pilots could have done earlier? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's the question we've already covered. Um, oh, he said that's it from here. Hope everybody is well and keeps all tails in their proper orientation to the ground, <laughs> which is to say not making any contact with the pavement. Jonathan in Minneapolis. I know that my tail is in proper orientation to the ground at this moment while we're recording the show. Good to hear. Yes. I'm hanging upside down. No, oh, are you? Well, yeah, the, the video shows like that to be a lie. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> we have vi- video evidence that you're lying. Liar. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, that was a uh, that was interesting. I'm glad we have that uh, plane spotter video to to see mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. close call there. Um, mm-hmm. But everything worked and no no uh, issues with damage to the airplane or all that. Nope. Nope. Maybe nope. just maybe some bruised ego uh, in in the pilots. Yeah, we can go back to our whole discussion mm-hmm. about. Um, you know, bad landings. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, went around, the right thing. came back, yep. good landing. Did the right thing. They All went good. Around. Yep. All right. Uh, Phil Timmer also sent this in uh, a while back. Uh, you'll recall that Phil is a regional airline pilot flying the mighty uh, CRJ series, Canada regional jet. Um, Canadian. And uh, we, and he took abuse from uh, some of our crew and others uh, regarding he the uh, CRJ two hundred, and uh, and then we were making some other comments about um, the uh, seven hundred and nine hundred series, and uh, he decided he needed to uh, do a little bit more defending here. So he, uh, we're gonna we're gonna play this audio feedback from Phil. Hey, BG crew, Phil Timmer here. I'm a CRJ 200, 700, and 900 captain at a U.S. regional airline. I recently left some audio feedback in defense of the CRJ 200 that I think was so convincing that both Nick C. and Steph now consider to be their favorite aircraft. (laughs) That said, I was recently on a deadhead on the CRJ 900, on which I heard several passengers mocking the aircraft for being small. At 120 feet long, it's longer than a 737-700, so I struggle to understand the mentality that it's considered a small aircraft. I understand that this might be owed to its small cabin width and that heavy pilots like Captains Nick and Rick probably consider anything smaller than a 767 to be a light twin, but I still can't wrap my head around the perception of the CRJ-900 being considered a small aircraft. You certainly wouldn't accuse a 120-foot yacht of being small. I'm likely being needlessly salty and defensive of my aircraft, but I still wanted to hear the APG crew's input on the matter. Cold IPAs, tailwinds, and all the rest. Take care. All right, Phil. Well, Steph, obviously, I have opinions. your your comments I obviously have opinions. hit hit a uh, hit a hit a nerve. So I, I can't remember exact. I mean, certainly the 200 has its own issues. I have issues with it, and we've discussed those. And I will leave those behind because this was more about the the 900. Um, I like the 900. I think it's quite spacious. 
Um, it's got big windows. They're not down around my waist. I can see out of them appropriately. Um, I don't ever feel crammed or cramped into a CRJ 900. And even the 700, I think, is is a reasonable size. It's really just the 200 that I have an issue with. Um, I, I don't mind flying on the, the 700 or 900. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it is the, the cabin width diameter that people see and react to when they get on the airplane. And, you know, remember that most passengers aren't paying any attention to what sort of aircraft they're actually going to be getting onto when they um, show up to take a trip somewhere. So it's often a surprise to them that, oh, I have to go down to, let's just use Charlotte as an example, the E-Gates, where it's all CRJs, 200s, 700s, 900s, and sometimes the Embraer 145s are down there. Um, And then they go, oh, to find a small plane. And that doesn't matter which of the small planes it is. They've already decided that it's a small airplane and that they're going to be uncomfortable and miserable. And they've set that expectation. And then they run from there. To be honest, uh, the 900 is not that much smaller, smaller than the little airplane that I'm flying now, which is the smallest airplane I've ever flown in the airlines, the uh, Boeing 717 mm-hmm. or McDonnell Douglas MD-95 more accurately which is basically the identical size of a DC nine dash 30. Um, but, um, you know, and I think that the fuselage width of the DC nine is, is kind of narrow compared to, uh, the Airbuses and the, and the Boeings, uh, et cetera. But, uh, I didn't want to tell you, but I've, I've been on a seven one seven or, uh, MD 95 and heard passengers complain about the small size of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're well, on a little okay. plane today. Oh, we're on a little plane today is usually how it goes. And I'm like, you don't you have, you have no idea. <laughs> That's okay. Like, you you want to get what? on a little airplane? I'll take you for a ride. It's, it's not airplane. the size of the airplane. It's the, Wait, I don't know what else it. to say, but uh, yeah. Um, and, and we don't, you know, we pilots really aren't as affected by all these things <laughs> as passengers are. I mean, we get a little taste of it when we're deadheading on our own little airplanes and uh, kind of can understand um you know the, the complaints like passenger period yeah well I, you're right liz I, she said you don't really like being a passenger period i said well that's true i don't <laughs> i've kind of gotten accustomed had, to having my seat always available for me and yes, yes. having I had a some lot very, of windows a very spacious uh 182 flights in the back of the 182 the yeah. other day did you we were doing some some hop and pop someone was doing coaching uh canopy coaching and i just rode along for the ride to altitude to jump out of the airplane. But at one point there were only two of us on there and the pilot. So that's, that's spacious. I sat in the very back, had my feet forward up against the, you know, the fuselage and took a nap. Nice. And they said, Hey, now you got to jump out. Oh, okay. Get out. Yeah. But make sure you're awake before you jump. I haul boxes says, how well is the CRJ 200 doing with German women? <laughs> that is the test. That, that, I think, yes, that is. I wish we could put that in the title somehow, but I don't think that's going to be well received. Oh, I could say so many things, show. but I won't. Oh, no. um, thank you for that comment. I haul boxes. Wow. Yeah. So Phil, uh, you know, just slough it off, you know, just let it yeah. roll down the back. Who cares? Uh, yeah, I still it, don't care for the CRJ 200 and I never will. It's okay. They, I think the biggest, the biggest improvement they made, uh, was the fact they, you know, adjusted the height of the seats so that you didn't feel like you were an adult sitting in a, in a preschool, um, desk or something, you know, like you're 
having to kind of really duck down to see out the window. Um, but um, yeah, fine airplanes uh, made in Canada. How could they not? Exactly. All right. Um, let's move on to some feedback from Robert uh, in Tucker, Georgia. And uh, he said, this popped up after checking your recent episode. So I thought I would share it. It's a YouTube video and it's a, it's a Pan Am training video. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a training video to show how uh, the flight attendant, the stewardesses at that time, I guess, uh, how to deal with situations where they might be kind of a stressful situation and how to, how to handle that. And uh, so I'm going to go over here and play. Hopefully I got this one right. The smoker. So what should we do first when we get to London? Well, I think the first thing we should do is go to Harrods sale. Are they having their sale? Absolutely. First week in January. We're really in, you know, right time for it. Oh, wonderful. And they have the best thing they have. The furs are on sale. The most incredible fur collection you've ever seen. Excuse me. Perhaps you didn't realize, but this is a no smoking zone. And I'll have to ask you to put the cigarette out. Oh, I'll just be a minute, actually. I mean, I realize it's no smoking, but it'll just be a minute. Well, it is a no-smoking zone, and we don't allow cigarette smoking here, and I have to ask you to put it out. I'm sorry. There's really nothing I can do. We have regulations that we have to enforce. Oh, it's not bothering me. I don't I don't care. Oh, that, that may be fine, but it may be bothering the other people around you. I have seats in the back. I'll be more than happy to try and move you. Well, actually, it's not necessary because there's a seat right here for me. Oh, that's all well and good, but the smoking zone is right back here, active row forty-seven. Now, if you'd like, I'll take you back, and we can help. We can find another seat. Actually, I but have in the meantime, I have there. to ask you to put the cigarette out. This is really, why do you have to be so nitpicky? I have to ask you to put the cigarette out now. This is a no smoking zone. Do you believe this? I believe it. Really, it's not. It bothers me. Put the cigarette out. Thank you. She puts the cigarette out. Yeah, how rude. How rude. Terrible. Can you believe it? I'm just thinking of the scene in Airplane where the uh, ticket agent asks if he wants smoking or non-smoking. He says smoking and he gets the ticket that's <laughs> <Tick's> smoking. smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, the the uh, Then they played, I, I can't play this one um, on the show, but uh, what, the, what the flight attendant wanted to say was, Put the mm, cigarette, cigarette out, biatch. <laughs> Can you imagine now, though? No. It's not bothering anybody. Everybody yeah, like, not bothering. It's bothering all of us, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody within 20 feet of like, where oh, you're sitting like right now. Airplane. There's another version of it, another situation, of an alternate, um, same same cast of characters, the same lady smoking and kind of a different way to handle the situation, et cetera. So they're always fun to watch these training videos. And, and then, as you said, nowadays is like, what they're smoking what? on an airplane. What, what? <laughs> are you kidding me? Gosh. Anyway. Um, so, and he also sent in, uh, uh another, uh, training video that we're not going to play, but we'll have in our show notes. If, should you, uh, want to watch it, it's, uh, another Pan Am training video, uh, basically talking about shop talk and about how we shouldn't talk shop talk around passengers and making comments about other passengers and what idiots they are for doing the stupid things they're doing. And I'm thinking to myself, as I was watching that one, hmm, <laughs> I probably mm, said some, probably things. need to watch this video. <laughs> I think I may have, may have actually said some things I've on the PA that was a little bit, 
<laughs> I shouldn't have said. Insensitive? Yeah, a or, little, maybe. Yeah. Or heartfelt, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, I meant Definitely to say heartfelt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Robert, uh, for that. And again, uh, both of these video uh, links will Michael be in the Michael wants show to notes. know if I'm old enough to have been on an aircraft with a smoking section. And to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, I have to I find am. out when. I think uh, there was still smoking. Yeah, there was still smoking ab- aboard uh, Acme flights uh, when I was hired in 1988. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't recall if I was. I mean, we definitely. I definitely took flights when I was quite young, but I don't remember if there was. Remember. I do remember being in like shopping malls and restaurants and I mean, restaurants for sure. But I have very vivid memory of being in a shopping mall and people smoking all around, mm-hmm. which was yeah. And nowadays, when you go somewhere and like they allow smoking, like in a bar or whatever, and you just. I, I mean, it's just, what is what is what? that? It's like so odd recently where smoking was happening and it's definitely not supposed to happen, but it wasn't, um, nothing was being enforced. Oh, I have to tell you this. You're not going to, I had to get fuel or gas in, um, North Carolina when I was up, uh, near Weaverville Mm -hmm. and, uh, this lady was Was out there smoking at the pump works. She was working at the place. Yeah. She's like with the trash can right next to like within a foot and a half of these pumps. With a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. So like Lit. not even secured well. No. And I'm thinking. Probably oh right gosh. next to a big no smoking sign. Fire I, risk. All what, that. what is she doing? She's smoking a cigarette. Like right well, next to a gasoline it. pump. Oh man. I would have gone somewhere else for. I, I actually moved. I went to the other side of the. Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> I just want to be farther away from the inevitable inferno. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Anyway, that blew me away. I'm thinking, oh, I should not be smelling this. Thankfully, it didn't actually right. blow you away. No, it did not yeah, actually blow me away. All right. Uh, continuing with Sean, uh, he uh, sent us in this piece of feedback, uh, and he said, and you thought getting hit with a laser is bad. Someone shot a Cessna 172 in Massachusetts. Jeez. And uh, I have some video to go along with that. Here we go. News, local news. Antoinette, terrifying moments for that student pilot and instructor who were about 500 feet up in the air when the pilot reported the plane he was operating was hit by a bullet. This is all according to the plane's co-owner who spoke with News Center 5, who says when the plane landed here at the Gardner Airport, it was leaking fuel, and after removing the fuel tank, a maintenance crew found a bullet and called police. That bullet hole on the wing of the Cessna 172, just a few feet from where the pilot was sitting. That's the bullet hole right there. If the angle was just a little bit lower, there's a pilot sitting right there would have been dead. Now, the FAA and NTSB have decided this incident does not fall under their jurisdiction. So Templeton police are investigating with state police offering assistance. We're live in Gardner this morning. Matt Reed, WCVB News Center 5. Already Matt. Oh, okay. Some scary music. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, Steph? Has this ever That's happened to terrifying. you? That's <laughs> terrifying. No. Thank goodness, no. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's cowboys out here. Oh, yeah. Standing out at the end Yeehaw. of the runway, pointing, <laughs> shooting straight up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of sad that, that Nick wasn't here to uh, kind of give us one of the old uh, yeehaws. Here we go. Bunch of cowboys shooting at airplanes. Big, no, big metal birds. Terrifying. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Did you see that that one shot where it was like the the fuel was still streaming down yeah. and puddling yes. underneath yeah. it? Yeah. Like, dang. Yeah. yeah. Anybody yeah, got talk about another fire yeah. fire risk? Anybody got a light? <laughs> yeah. Anybody got a light? <sighs> okay. Well, thank you, Sean. Not good. Not good. Please uh, don't for, shoot at airplanes. Don't shoot yeah, lasers at airplanes. Don't shoot. Don't point anything at airplanes. Actually, yeah. just don't. Camera. You can put your camera. Not, What's wrong with you people? Yeah. Come on. I have no idea. And this is Massachusetts, where they don't have a heck of a lot of cowboys. Yeah, and and uh, tighter gun control yeah. laws. I think. I uh, wrong. See. It's unclear whether someone with a gun just happened to hit the plane, or if someone was aiming at it. Whoever did this is an idiot. Uh, this is, I think, the uh, representative from. Oh, the co-owner of the plane, Dominic Scalera. He said, um, yeah, whoever did this is an idiot. It's pretty yep. simple. You do not. If you know gun safety at all, you do not shoot at an animal unless you have a license and are going to eat it. And you do not randomly shoot a gun. You shoot at a target. Maybe the airplane was a target. That, that's the safe way to handle a gun, and this is not safe. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Crazy. hopefully they can trace it back to whoever did it and um, make sure that never happens again. Absolutely. Uh, moving on. Uh, item seven. That's a good one. Uh, this is feedback sent in from Brad Nunn. Uh, you'll remember Steph. We mm-hmm. got a yep. chance to meet Brad uh, in real life at our mm-hmm. meetup uh, a couple of weeks ago in Charlotte. And he said, I recently heard about this incident, even though it took place in 2020. I was wondering if the APG crew had covered this previously. We did not. Uh, If not, I thought it might be an interesting incident to discuss. And he says, I realize this video, uh, which is very well done, is quite long. There are other articles on the web that discuss this uh, you might be interested in. Again, this may have already been covered, and if so, disregard. Um, This uh, video link that he did send is from Montour um, Mentor Pilot, which is an outstanding uh, YouTube channel. And um, I'll just play just a little bit of the video. I, as you said, it's it's like more than a half hour long, so we can't play the bit. And I'm sure that mentor pilot would really not appreciate if we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just play just the beginning of it, just as a teaser, and then we'll talk a little bit about this scenario after. An Airbus A350 is a final protein for runway 25 in Paris or Lee Airport. The first officer is pilot flying and he's just disconnected the autopilot, getting ready for a nice manual approach, when suddenly, from out of nowhere, this warning sounds in the cockpit. Go around, windshear ahead. The captain immediately calls for a go around, and initially the first officer responds to this, but very soon it becomes clear that something is not right, as things are starting to go very wrong inside of this cockpit. Stay tuned. Okay, again, that's a mentor pilot who does a very high quality, very professional um, YouTube podcast, I guess you call it. And um, and so, like yeah, exactly like ours, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> high quality, professional. <laughs> high quality, professional. Um, yeah, uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Definitely worth a watch because he goes into quite a bit of depth on and reenacting what happened in this scenario. And, uh, but we do have some other sources of information regarding that. And of course our favorite, uh, from the aviation Herald, uh, as, um, mentor pilot mentioned, uh, they were coming in, it was beautiful weather. Um, you know, there were no uh, convective activity right. and no thunderstorms. So no real reason to expect that there was going no. to be, that sounds like they hadn't gotten any reports of wind shear. Right. Nope. Nothing. And uh, on occasion, uh, the predictive wind shear system uh, will 
because it's using radar to kind of predict that you might be in a situation soon where you could encounter wind shear. Uh, it could have you know, one of its sweeps got some that bad data, uh, thinking that this is like a huge, you know, red thunderstorm cell directly ahead and within the parameters to uh, make that warning happen. Um, and in most cases, and it depends on, I guess, your airline. Uh, but in this type of a situation, uh, the captain has the ability to say, no, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's a, mm-hmm. obviously a, a bad, an error. Uh, yeah. an error. It's bad information, bad yeah. information. So just continue. continue. Uh, but that didn't happen here. The captain was probably startled as well and goes, go around like before you could even think about what was happening. And so, um, the captain ordered the go around uh, when the uh, co-pilot had already disconnected the autopilot. So it was manual flight control. Um, this led to an immediate and brutal break in the crew's action plan, subsequently increased their workload and considerably changed the rate of work after a flight of more than 11 hours. Okay. So you've hmm. been yeah. flying for a very long time. And then all of a sudden yeah, you're hit- come from San Francisco, I think. So, I think so. Yeah. Uh, the flight phase suddenly became a very dynamic or, or very dynamic. All of the occurrence sequence lasting around four minutes and the difference in altitude between the start of the go around and the stabilization stabilization altitude at 2000 feet being small. So there was, I think only about 600 feet from the time that they commenced the go around to the level off altitude of 2000 feet, which is one of the, uh, one of the threats when you have a relatively low altitude for a go-around. Uh, the captain uh, pilot monitors call for the go-around in immediate, uh, in immediate response to the predictive wind shear warning may have contributed to the destabilization of the co-pilot. Uh, the co-pilot thought that the autopilot was engaged, whereas this was no longer the case. So he'd already forgotten that <laughs> he had already disconnected the autopilot, made no input on the side stick. After the initiation of the go-around, okay, not good, plane started to deviate from the missed approach path. The flight director command bars progressively moved off-center uh, on the two axes. The co-pilot confronted with the surprise effect in connection with the unexpected triggering of the predictive wind shear warning. The change in the rate of work and the increased workload was then absent for the uh, co-pilot was absent, uh, quotes, uh, for a few minutes. This cognitive incapacitation was not initially identified by the captain or the relief pilot. Um, so he's just sitting there kind of staring straight ahead, but not right. doing anything. And I guess probably expecting, hands still on the controls, but just not. And not expecting that, anything. you know, thinking that the autopilot is going to fly this go around, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it's, it's not. not on. Mm-hmm. Uh so uh, the vertical profile to go around was continued to around 800 feet above the stabilization altitude. So they shot through the 2,000 feet, uh, about 800 feet above it. Uh, and despite the position of the flight director command bars, the altitude alerts and the altitude calls made by the captain and the relief pilot, um, they, con- they just continued to go blasting through that altitude. Although the captain had quickly identified this flight path deviation, he took control of the aircraft and started correcting the flight path more than 50 seconds after busting the 2000 foot altitude, the go around altitude. That's a lot of time. Yeah. It's a lot of time. Go by before he finally took control and I guess realized that, Oh, the co-pilot is just not something's wrong here. He's not, responding he's not doing what he's supposed to do to fly the airplane in a safe way 
Um, in the horizontal profile, it was the slight right input on the co-pilot side stick on increasing the nose up attitude at the beginning of the go around and not subsequently corrected. And the flight director command bar indications not being followed, which resulted in the plane being around 650 meters to the right of the runway center line and flying over the control tower. Yay. Hey, <laughs> Maverick. Just to buzz the tower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it goes into more detail here about, um, Oh, no, it gets worse, actually. Um, The co-pilot then put the airplane into level flight at an altitude of around 2,800 feet. The captain had just put his hand on the side stick when the co-pilot probably extended the speed brakes without calling this out. And after calling out, I have control, the captain engaged the autopilot, phase two, to return to the published missed approach path by turning left and descending to 2,000 feet. The case of the pilot monitoring taking late control of the flight path once the airplane configuration changes have been completed is typical of the occurrences in the study carried out by the BEA into airplane state awareness during go-around, a saga. Uh, In the dynamic context of the go-around, the cognitive incapacitation of the co-pilot was not verbalized by the crew. The captain had to manage a high workload on his own, flight control and navigation, as well as handling radio communications and the conflict with a plane taking off from runway two four. Oh yeah. We forgot to mention that. Uh, they have slightly converging when they're landing in this direction, runways offset a bit, uh, runway two four, and they were coming in on two five, I believe. And, um, so there was somebody that had been cleared for takeoff on another runway, which is, as mm. I said, a little bit further ahead of them, uh, geographically, but on a divergent, um, heading, uh, when you take off. Sure. And uh, so the and they ended approach, up increasing their speed quite a bit here too. They did, yeah. That's mm-hmm. why I think he put the speed brakes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, let's see the activation. Uh, okay, the extension of the speed brakes, very probably commanded by the co-pilot, led to an increase in the vertical the VLS. Uh, not sure. Uh, where are I? In the- um. And the activation of the low energy alert speed, speed, speed for the captain. This is the third disruptive element at the end of this flight, coming after the predictive wind shear warning and the co-pilot's incapacitation. The captain then returned to conventional manual flight control with the objective of increasing speed and stabilizing at 2,000. He, VLS is the lowest selectable speed. Oh, the lowest selectable speed, uh, Liz is telling us. That's what VLS um, says, or it stands for. Um so um, he temporarily put the thrust levers in the toga detent, which automatically caused the speed brakes to retract, disengaged the autopilot by his actions on the side stick, which also disengaged the flight directors due to the effective uh, mode reversion. He continued the descent while monitoring the separation with the other airplane. In this very emotional situation, the stability of his manual flight control was affected. In other words, he was probably not flying the airplane smoothly. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> like, being a passenger? Why am on I this? getting no help here? Yeah. They're going like, "Holy crap! Are we about what to die?" Yeah, I can't on? imagine what because I just love that um, the stability of his manual flight control was affected. Um. Okay. So it, it continues on, uh, but they got the, everything under control. The co-pilot um, temporary cognitive incapacitation disappeared, and uh, they got it all. You know, they, I can't use that phrase. Uh, they put it all back in the bag, and um, poop in a pile. Yeah, yeah, but got their poop in a pile, and <laughs> uh, they were able to uh, come back in for another successful approach and landing. 
So there's a final report talking about all of the different, uh, you know, major factors uh, in uh, the uh, path deviation during the go around, etc. A lot of lot of stuff here. And um, Mentor Pilot does an uh, outstanding job of going through all these fine details in in chronological sequences um, of this whole thing with beautiful visual effects. Um, so I really highly recommend that all of you watch the video. It's definitely something we can all learn something from. I'm interested in the BEA's airplane state awareness during go around study though. It makes you wonder how often, uh, you know, what, how common these factors are. Cause be. you think you train for go arounds, but you know, is there any, unless you're really expecting it for some reason, you know, we talk about, mm-hmm. oh, we should be thinking about flying approaches to go arounds and not to landing. Yeah. Well, that's fun but, to say. And but really no one does that. I know, I know. I mean, our minds don't work that way, right? No, your mind is going, flying this approach to land. Mm-hmm. And then when it doesn't go that way. It's like um, 99% we're landing, you know, this is what's You really happening. have to, you know, think through what you're going to do at that point because it's, it's much less automatic, even though it's trained for. And you have to think about all the different scenarios, like in this situation. Right. In this case, they've got a, you know, there's going to be a traffic conflict and the autopilot was disengaged already, Mm -hmm. but they forgot it. And he didn't plan on the co-pilot being, you know, so startled that he was essentially uh, mentally incapacitated. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. It's just, I would imagine that co-pilot just going, well, this is, this can't be happening. Uh, Why is this happening? Why are the bars going like that? Why is the airplane, why is the autopilot what is it not doing following now? the flight director bars? What is it doing now? Yeah, exactly. Except and now, the autopilot's not, not doing he's it. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one doing it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It's a mm-hmm. quite Mess. quite a situation. And to read it and to think about it, it's like, well, yeah. gosh, that should never happen, but it, no. it happens. It does. Yeah. I mean, this is like one of the most advanced airplanes flying right now, the uh, Airbus A350. Um yeah, Liz is making a a, um, a comment regarding about maybe we should put this back in and perhaps get uh, Nick's Captain input Nick's on the input on this yep. thing. Automation side of things. Yeah. Airbus. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Law, all that stuff. Half an hour left, Jeff. Half an hour. Okay. Um, we have approximately half hour remaining. And so we're going to jump to um, – we're going to – this is the point at which we start – hopscotching all around and um, you know picking stuff that we think we want to do for this show and maybe setting aside some others for our follow-on shows and uh, this is uh, number 12 uh, some feedback from uh, Jerry um, not um, not our, our our captain Jerry unfortunately oh, not, we haven't heard from captain Jerry in a long yeah, time we haven't if you're listening captain Jerry please send us some audio we miss you. Anyway, Jerry asks uh, ATC question and audio response. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, he asks a question and then we get some help from um, an expert. Uh, hi, guys. Hope you're all keeping safe and well. As always, loving the show. I only started listening around a year ago, but it's fair to say that it's more than enough time to pick up the old APG syndrome. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but hey, there's no use fighting a battle you won't win. Yeah, true. <laughs> Just embrace it. <laughs> yeah, just embrace it. But anyway, on to the feedback. It's really more of a question. I hope you guys could provide some context around 
whilst listening to 521 and Chris talking about the approach situations that were referenced in 518, it got me thinking about something I've heard recently. I live not a million miles away from Glasgow Airport. Glasgow? Glasgow? Glasgow. I always say that wrong. It's a relatively busy field, but perhaps not quite as intense as uh, Manchester, Gatwick, or Heathrow. It does have a good variety of domestic and international short, medium, long-haul routes, coupled with a fair amount of GA traffic. Anyway, I sometimes listen in to ATC whilst having a look on Flight Radar 24 and generally just enjoy listening to the transmissions. At peak times, delivery, ground, tower, approach controllers will all be online and passing aircraft through the various channels as their flight progresses. However, at certain times, often in the early hours of the morning when the Greek, Turkish, and uh, Canaries charters are returning back, there are fewer ATC stations online or one controller covering two stations. So much so that you'll hear the approach controller then ask aircraft to then contact the same person on a different frequency once established. For example, quote, Tomjet 35 Charlie, fully established, seven miles, runway 23. And then Tomjet 35 Charlie, thank you. Call me on tower now, 118.8. My question is what's the reason for the switchover in frequency if it's only going to be the same aircraft talking to the same person on another frequency? Are there any differences in capabilities between the two frequencies? If not, would it not make more sense for an aircraft to stay on uh, to stay on the one frequency right down to touchdown? Would love to get your views on this. Wishing you blue skies and tailwinds. Thanks, Jerry. And now, you know, this is a really a good question uh, if you don't live in this world of flying and air traffic control communications and some of the oddities that that occur especially when they're working multiple frequencies and uh, we pilots have a captain nick reached out to adam okay captain nick uh reached out to adam spink our heathrow tower um or are we allowed to say that a very large airport uh outside of london um tower where the queen lives uh where the queen lives and uh, so uh, she lives he, in the tower. I think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe. Tower um, London. Uh, the Tower of London. Yes, the Tower of Heathrow, London, <laughs> uh, is where uh, Adam works, and uh, he um, sent us back some audio feedback. So let's take a listen from Adam, the great Adam Spink. Hi, everybody. It's Adam in the UK here. I hope everybody is well. And uh, been asked by Captain Nick to provide some feedback on uh, Jerry's email about air traffic control and the use of frequencies. The fact that sometimes when he listens in, he can hear the same controller working two or more frequencies. And sometimes even hears that controller asking aircraft to transfer from one of the frequencies that that controller is working to another frequency that the same controller is working and uh, asking why this, this might happen. Um, so a bit of background first, so everybody um, understands a bit more about the, the situation. Air traffic control units, whether it's a, a control center, a group of sectors, airspace sectors, uh, an airport, a control tower, will have probably more frequencies and therefore more controller positions available to them than they generally need most of the time. So, for example, I think he quotes Glasgow Airport. Now, I don't know this off the top of my head. I'm just I'm just sort of guesstimating this. But I would imagine Glasgow Airport has 
a delivery frequency published, a ground frequency published, a tower frequency published or a, a local frequency, so the runway controller, a uh, and possibly three approach radar frequencies. So in the radar room at the base of the tower in Glasgow, there might well be three radar screens um, with the availability to have a, a separate radar frequency. Uh, so three of those. Um, now, generally, most of the time, the traffic situation won't be busy enough or complex enough to require all three radar positions to be open. They will be some of the time during rush hour, but but at quieter times they won't be. So um, there might be a radar controller um, sort of controlling the stacks and aircraft coming into the stacks and maybe coming um, off the bottom of the stack onto intermediate approach. And then another radar controller handling uh, from just off the stack to final approach, vectoring them onto the ILS um, or the final approach track. And maybe a zone controller who is handling the other aircraft wanting to transit through the airspace. Um, but some, if not most of the time, you might only have two frequencies open so that um, there's a zone controller and a radar director controller. Um, or even if it's really quiet, there might be one person doing all of those duties. And in air traffic control, what we call that is we have band boxed. So we've band boxed three of the positions together onto one position. Now, there are two ways of doing this. It, it's the same in a control tower as well. You might have, as I said, delivery, ground and air, as we call it, or the runway or local controller. When it's busy, there will be one person doing each of those jobs. So three people plugged in in the control tower. When it's quiet, you might only have one person doing all of those duties. So delivery, ground and runway. And again, those are the three positions having bandboxed onto the runway controller. And they're doing the whole um, selection of duties. So there are two ways of doing this, two methods. One of which is to close frequencies, physically switch them off and get aircraft to call up on the other frequency. So for example, for a departure, if you're going to close the delivery frequency, you would have to put on the ATIS instead of the usual message saying, um, you know, call Glasgow delivery on blah, 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 blah frequency. It will say um, before, you know, for start and pushback, call Glasgow ground on one to one decimal nine or for 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 start call Glasgow Tower on one one eight decimal seven, etc. Um, so that's one way of doing this, and then you turn it off, and you have one frequency doing everything. Uh, the other way of doing it is to keep all the frequencies open, but using our comm systems, we can effectively um, combine the frequencies together. So that's something called cross coupling, which people in the radio industry will be familiar with. So effectively, if if frequency A and frequency B are cross-coupled, that means that a controller can transmit transmit on frequency A and everybody on frequency A will hear it, obviously, because that's the normal mode. But also, frequency, receivers for frequency B will pick it up and then rebroadcast it on frequency B. So an aircraft on frequency B will hear an aircraft on frequency A transmit and vice versa, and both um, aircraft on both frequencies will hear air traffic control transmit. Um, so now this might sound complicated, but actually when it comes to splitting off the sectors again, it's actually really easy because theoretically all the aircraft are in on the right frequencies, the correct frequencies for where they are 
in the air or on the ground. Um, so, so when it comes to say open ground control from from split ground control off from the tower controller, the ground controller will come in um, at their control position, plug in, select the frequency, so they're already listening to what's going on. The ground, the tower controller will say, okay, there's this aircraft here, this aircraft here. Do the handover traffic, and turn off the radio on their position, and no word needs to be sent to the aircraft to change frequency because they're theoretically already on the correct frequency. Now, that's one reason why um, Jerry is probably hearing the aircraft being transferred from one to the other, even though it's the same person controlling both frequencies. The other consideration we need to think about is the um, operational coverage and strength of the radio frequencies. Now, in in en route control, and you know the the overflying aircraft high above, um, there won't be much difference. But if if an aircraft has called on to the the primary approach frequency, that might have a designated coverage of I don't know. I'm guessing here again, 50 or 60 nautical miles. So and it will have a strong radio um, transmitter or a relatively strong radio transmitter. To allow that um, that distance to be covered, and the tower or the 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 number two director, so who's, who's vectoring aircraft onto final approach, um, might have a weaker, a relatively weaker um, radio transmitter. The transmitters might be in a different geographical location than the first frequency, and certainly that will be the case for the tower frequency, even though again it might be controlled by the same person. The tower frequency might only have a operational coverage of 20 miles or 15 miles and a weaker transmitter set with transmitters in a different location. And when we get onto the ground, the ground frequency will have a relatively even weaker transmitter with an operational coverage of maybe two miles because theoretically it's only for aircraft on the ground at that airport. And um, an aircraft that are on the ground obviously don't need... Uh, if, if we're only talking on the ground at one airport, we don't need strong transmitters to, to reach those aircraft. And we place the transmitters and receivers in the appropriate places for aircraft on the ground. They might be masked by terrain um, of some airborne areas. You know, if you're 40 miles away, 30 miles away, you might be behind, behind some mountains um, when you're trying to get line of sight from a transmitter. So, so there are lots of considerations. Um, one other consideration is at airports, there will also be UHF um, channels which mirror the VHF channels for vehicle drivers. A lot of vehicles you see driving around airports won't be on the same frequency as the uh, as the ATC talking to aircraft. They'll be on different UHF uh, channels, as we call them. And again, that's a cross-coupling arrangement so that um, if I transmit on VHF, then the UHF receivers will pick that up and then rebroadcast that on the UHF so all the vehicle drivers on my frequency can hear me talk to aircraft and hear the aircraft and vice versa. Um, so that function might not be available if you're talking to an approach on an approach radar frequency. Um, so there are lots of technical considerations, um, operational considerations in terms of ease of splitting off um, positions and making sure the aircraft on the correct frequency when that happens and it reduces a bit of workload as well because you don't need to change the ATIS message and the ATIS message um, obviously um, might not get picked up straight away if that's changed so 
as soon if you close the delivery position and you change the ATIS message to say, ah, oh, you need to call ground frequency now for start, it might be 30 minutes, 40 minutes until all the aircraft have heard that and 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 listened and understood to that uh, understood that ATIS message. So within the intervening 40, 45 minutes, you'll still have aircraft calling up on the frequency you've now turned off. So really, you need to keep it on. And if you're going to keep it on, well, why not use it and cross-couple the two frequencies together? Um, so I hope it's a complicated topic. There are lots of considerations to bear in mind. I hope that's explained some of the issues and um, hope everybody is well. Uh, looking forward to seeing uh, a lot more people uh, in the coming year. Thank you and goodbye. Again, the great Adam Spink um, from London. Now, I don't know, Steph, now correct me if I'm mm. wrong here, but that whole uh, cross-coupling rebroadcast on the other frequencies thing, I don't I don't think I've ever experienced that. Um, that doesn't happen much here. Over, over here in yeah. uh, cowboy land. But uh, so here's the deal. It when, might. If it is, I don't know that it's happening. But no, because I don't think it is because when like one and this usually happens uh, your your experience is probably going to be different because you do a different it's type probably of flying exactly the do. same but but, but like in the like early in the morning you know and and they're and it, the traffic is really low and like you're one of the first flights uh, to start using ATC services when they've opened the tower at six o'clock local time um, a lot of times you'll they they haven't combined to and you'll hear this quite often though they'll say you know for clearance contact ground control 121.9 because it's the same person working ground control and so why mm -hmm. have two different frequent but sometimes they don't do that but it's clear you can hear ground control and the voice on that and you can hear the clearance delivery frequency and it's the same voice the thing that's maddening about that to me and i'm sure to steph and everybody else out there is the fact that you tr you try to um so you you, you it's clear to you because he's just read out a clearance on ground control and you're, you're waiting for taxi and, and then you're having to like in your mind think, okay, how long would it be for him or her to read back the, the flight clearance? Because you don't want to start transmitting because the other person is transmitting on the other frequency. You know what I mean? You can't hear yeah, the other it, it airplane. Happens, it happens in, in the Bravo too, um, because especially it happens more on uh, the, the lower sector controllers frequencies because that's where people call up for flight following or to get their clearance if they've departed an uncontrolled veil. And um, sometimes there's lengthy instructions or amendments to clearances. And if you don't hear the other half of that conversation, you don't know when you can call up, in my case, to be like, hi, I'm here. And I'm probably just hitting the ident like repeatedly and hoping that they notice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a bunch of that. eggs that you're afraid you're <laughs> going to step on one of them and crack them open and break them. And, and you don't want – and I've heard, you know, controllers sometimes get really irritated, you know. And I understand because they're trying to handle all these different frequencies and different – transmissions and everything else and i'm thinking but well, i'm sorry yeah generally, I'm generally they're really good and it'll be a quick transmission uh multiple calls different frequencies stand by i will call you back mm -hmm. and then it'll be in turn one at a time and then and then generally anyone else or did i miss yeah. anyone right and, yeah hey if i told you to stand by okay and i didn't you know, call you ahead. yeah go ahead it's your right. turn now or it'll sometimes be, they'll respond to one and they know there was another one in there but they couldn't quite catch who it was because your brain can really only focus on mm -hmm. one thing at a time. They'll say, and then they'll, they'll respond to the one and they'll be, okay, who else called? Mm -hmm. And hopefully you're, then you're hoping that you're the only other person that called because you're going to just immediately key up and say it again. 
this cross coupling and rebroadcasting. I, I love the idea. Again, yeah. uh, maybe maybe I should reach out to RH slash AG and Let's ask them the happens. same question. I know that uh, Jerry Let's send them. Sent, we'll just send them Adam's feedback and just say, "Hey, does this is this a thing? We don't think it is, but right." Um, I know that uh, Jerry is you know from across the pond, and so Adam's answer probably um, is 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 pretty jives accurate, a bit and, you know, mm-hmm. and jives with probably what's happening over there. But again, in my experience over here on the on the other side of the pond, I don't mm, I don't so know if that happens very it, often. It, it happens some well, and it happens to answer to to go to Jerry's specific question about hey, switch to my other frequency. Uh, I find when that happens, it's usually because they're combining or uncombining frequencies because workload has increased or decreased. So they're splitting frequencies. Um, That'll happen. They'll just call you up and say, hey, uh, whoever you are, switch to my frequency now, 124.0. Okay. Well, here's another idea. So I'm coming in on approach and they say, contact me on 118.8. Mm-hmm. Oh, this too. Yeah, I know uh, now, where you're going with this. Uh, now I'm on that frequency and everybody within the local yes. pattern area now is on that same frequency and it gives my essay, you know, boosts way Better. up. Better. And sometimes it, it is a it is a distance issue as well. You know, certain frequencies cover certain uh geographic areas and if you've moved from one geographic area to another you may still you may need to be on a different frequency but you may still be with the same controller exactly that will wow so complicated isn't it yeah okay <sighs> anyway, remind me it's, Liz, it's to, only, <laughs> uh, to contact uh, rh it's and only AG complicated when you're trying to operate three different frequencies at one time and yeah. you totally say what you want to say on the wrong frequency right to everybody yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that's yeah. definitely never happened to me and definitely didn't happen no. to me this weekend. No, it And never I definitely does. didn't actually try to switch frequencies and then hit the wrong radio switch. Yeah, but have you made radio <laughs> calls on the PA or PAs on the radio? Thankfully, uh, I don't have a PA, yeah, but see, sometimes if that's... we're trying to coordinate what we're doing, so company traffic, mm-hmm. which is not infrequent if there's two airplanes flying, you really have to be careful before you make those calls because let's just say that they're not always standard radio uh, <laughs> telephony um, stuff <laughs> words not clean <laughs> yeah. yeah i you know it's just easier to get a little loose right. um, gotcha yeah yeah 10 minutes left Jeff, all right unless you want to wrap it up yeah now. i think i'm gonna i think we're gonna wrap it up liz okay. I, I know we have a, a little but it'd be kind of nice to kind of you know, keep it within the three and, and, mm-hmm. or maybe yeah, a little bit shorter. We don't have shorter. to push it right to the end. No, I mean, we don't. We've got a few minutes now to wrap up and say things about this show and tell people where they can find us and I find stuff. And exactly. Contact us. And I, th- I should just let Steph do the rest of the show here and I'll just sit back and push <laughs> buttons. <laughs> Neil, Neil's correct though. My PA is a shout over the shoulder. Usually. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, Don't do that. <laughs> doesn't say you have to make the PA on, on, on a, on That's an true. amplified I do system. Make, I do make PAs. Um, <laughs> yeah. they're just not on any sort of amplified system. And, uh, I'm a PA to a lot of people, a pain in the, a PA. Anyway. uh, let's see. Okay. So okay. as you were alluding, uh, dear Dr. Steph, mm-hmm. uh, we are wrapping up the show now and this is usually when we say, Hey, if you haven't checked out our website, you really should. It's airlinepilotguy.com. Lots of stuff there. Um, information probably outdated, uh, about the crew, and the uh, community and uh, the community calendar. I said the community yeah, we never calendar. did say where Nick and Rick were this week. And oh, we're I, just trying to make sure everything is around the 50% mark. That includes yeah. websites, social medias, all those things. I think it's a, it's a great bar to shoot for. 
Mm-hmm. Speaking of bars to shoot for. <laughs> uh, um, oh, uh, Liz says, you know, we never did mention why um, Miami Rick and uh, Camacho Man aren't here with us today. And it's because basically we don't really know. No. Um, well, we know why Nick's not. Camacho, yeah. Camacho Man's not here. Yeah, he uh, was just swamped with uh, too yeah. many other things going on in his life on in his life. So we completely understand that. And, uh, I'm sure that he'll be back on a future episode. So, uh, mm-hmm. we missed you, uh, Nick Camacho. And, uh, I'm sure that the reason why we don't have uh, Miami Rick here with us is because he's out there working as well, flying airplanes mm-hmm. and, uh, or working on the large to-do list they've created at their residence. Yes. A lot, a lot going on in Shay, uh, Ruiz in, mm-hmm. uh, in the Valley of the Sun. sun. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll hear back from uh, Rick soon as well. So we missed you guys. Hope to see you again on a future episode. And, um, anyway, so check out the website. You can find out all kinds of stuff. And also we're on social media and Steph is going to talk about that. Sure thing. We are on Facebook. That's Facebook dot com slash airline pilot guy we're also on twitter where we are at apg crew and you can find our individual twitter handles pinned to the top of that page i'm not sure if we added nick c there yet but mm, i don't think so but i did give him the information for apg crew do that okay he can he can add himself then he's allowed to make administrative type changes like that um you can also head over to instagram we're apg crew and all of us now have the login and none of us have done anything with it but Probably never will. <laughs> you know, eventually. I just. Well, I know. I mean, I haven't done a crew log a in a while list. either. So. Oh, well, we haven't done any crew logs. You know, I've got I've got some opportunity this weekend, so I'm going to be bold and say maybe. Maybe that's good. Yes. Maybe. Yes. Because probably what's going to happen is I'm going to get on my flight and fall asleep for about four hours. Well, don't do not that. Do a crew log. We'll do a crew log. We'll remind you. Okay. Thank um. You. Oh. Facebook, before we move on to yes. the other thing, um, yeah, I thought that that uh, Jeff Nielsen account was gone because no. I couldn't log in, but I tried again um, a couple of times and I finally figured out how to log in and it's still there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I weird. still don't know why people are requesting me to be their friend on the Jeff Nielsen Facebook page, but again, it's not you. I'm not asking well, you know, and now I, I might shoot myself in the foot. Maybe what if I actually do ask for somebody to become my friend? But probably not. Uh, but friend. anyway, so I'm I'm on Facebook basically in three places: <laughs> our airline pilot guy page, which is like the number one, right? Uh, Captain Jeff, my actual original Facebook page, and Jeff Nielsen. Uh, so yeah. And it's so amazing to me that I'm in so many different places on Facebook, and that's like the the social media thing that I hardly ever do you never to. look at yeah so <laughs> yeah life is I, I'm very guilty of not going to our Facebook page my Facebook mostly revolves around running yeah and like very specific running groups yeah mine so. too um, one last time in your bathroom there uh, yeah oh that's right this is kind of uh, sad I don't know Hillel uh, if he's it's bittersweet you're right Liz uh, I wonder if uh, Hillel is is here one in, last time. in the cabin for the for the last time farewell shower oh I hear I recognize that water it sounds the same everywhere I go actually hey Hillel can you can you do can you tell us about slack for the last time okay but I'm dripping wet I know 
You're always dripping wet. Come on over here. I'll make room for you at the microphone. And now you can tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Where's the soap? I already packed it up. Sorry. Oh. Probably get him some soap. Yeah, I'll get him some soap after we wrap yeah. this thing up. Fair okay. Uh, also, we uh, want to thank our producer, Liz, in Toronto. Thank yeah, you, Liz. There she is. Thank you very much for uh, keeping this thing uh, mostly on the rails and keeping me straight. And, I try. Uh, we can't uh, do this thing without you. Or if we if we did, uh, it wouldn't be as good. But well, thank you very much for that. And. Uh, Finally, we're going to say, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine